Ladies, gentlemen, Australians, Canadians, and all the other ones out there listening to us today uh, for episode 27 of Double Oz 7. We're into our movie recaps now. We're up to the second Pierce Brosnan, the second film of the 90s, Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, a nice lazy but adequate effort from James Bond. My name is Colin, a distant cousin of... Hello, my name is Noah and bedankt wir het hebben van mij. Oh, sorry, sorry. I was just uh, brushing up on a little Danish there. Sorry. I uh, should do that later. <laughs> and my name is Ben and I could shoot you from Stuttgart and still create the proper effect. Sounds like you need to practice a little Danish. <laughs> I was German. Yeah, Noah. we're going to... Just in case anybody's wondering, this entire episode is going to be done in foreign accents. So <laughs> you don't like yes. to tune out now. <laughs> oh, I yeah. love that accent. <laughs> but as I said, we're here to talk about Tomorrow Never Dies, which was Pierce Brosnan's follow-up to The Brilliant Golden Eye. And uh, we'll kind of go around and uh, give our opinions as we kind of gave them on the last episode, but elaborate a little bit. And uh, I'll start off. As I- I've said so many times throughout the series this was the movie despite the fact that i had seen goldeneye before and i had seen bits and pieces of some other bonds this was the one that made me a bond fan this is the one where i came home from the movie and i'm like i want to watch more james bond and there are so many things that are really good about this movie i mean for one they're definitely embracing the bond stereotypes and cliches more than anything else um not always successful in doing it but it was definitely more of an attempt to make a classic bond and not focus so much on the modern day. Um, The movie's very entertaining. Uh, There's really nothing wrong with this movie, other than the fact that you could tell it was maybe a little bit rushed. Uh, They were trying to do a quick follow-up to Goldeneye, didn't really have as much effort put into it. Um, But as I kind of described it as, this is, I kind of stand by the statement, it's a lazy but adequate Bond movie. Um, There's not a lot to really criticize, uh, but... I'm very nostalgic about this movie just because this was the one that got me into it. For that reason, it's one that I've seen probably more than uh, most of the other Bond movies. So, uh, lazy and adequate. Uh, does anybody else challenge me on that? Uh, I don't think I'd challenge you on that. Um, this is just one of the most stock standard formulaic Bond films ever. Um, it almost contri- 
contributes nothing new to the series at all. But that's a good thing. It's a Bond film. It's a formulaic Bond film, and that's what I like. Um, it, it's not Goldeneye. Um, Goldeneye was kind of the setup for this new era of Bond, and now this is kind of, well, we've set up everything, so let's just make a standalone film, and it works for the most part. There's not too many bad things to say. It's more so that there's just not a lot of excellent things to say. It's more just, well, that was good, that was good, this is Bond. Uh, I think Pierce Brosnan is infinitely more comfortable in the role this time around than the first time, and he just sinks into Bond so well here. Uh, there's a few cringeworthy moments here. The plot is not brilliant, but at the end of the day, it's not an all-time classic or an all-time high, but it is a good film. It's a good action film. It's a good Bond film. I enjoy it. It's just, it's it, it's that kind of middle thing. It's nothing new, but it's good. So, yeah, we'll get into it a lot more, but that's the only thing. I like the lazy but adequate because it, it's good, but it's not brilliant. It's just it's good. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I don't have to go over my Brosnan love, but I mean, the interesting, my background with this film, I think I've mentioned it slightly before, is that it was kind of the forgotten Brosnan film for me for a long time. I mean, I'd seen Goldeneye yeah, on numerous occasions so- and then I saw World is Not Enough in cinema. I, I, I saw, I didn't see this till after I'd seen The World is Not Enough in cinemas. I remember my dad and I just um, borrowing this off a friend of his who was randomly like, oh, this is that Bond movie we haven't seen before. Um, and... Yeah, it's 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 a good film. <laughs> like just stealing Noah's quotes there. I mean, it's as as Noah said, it's very formulaic. It's just kind of you know one standard sort of plot. That's what happens. There's no sort of real like twists or turns along the way. It's probably the most um, you know formulaic of the Brosnan era of the films. Um, it's it's entertaining. It's definitely one you can just pick up off the shelf and watch on a on a rainy day um, and just get into it. Um, you know, it doesn't really involve kind of a from Russia with love sort of thought process involved into what's going on. Um, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of the villain. Um, I love Elliot Carver as a, as a character and Jonathan Price as an actor. I love the henchmen. Uh, the Bond girls in this film are fantastic. Um, you know, the other woman, Michelle Yeoh, um, I mean, <laughs> we'll no doubt talk a lot about her, but, uh, you could probably argue that she is one of, if not the most Bondish sort of Bond girl out of all of them, um, you know, an argument there. Um, you know, the locations, uh, you know, are different. Um, you know, great some action scenes are fantastic. Um, you know, there's really nothing similar to what I said with Goldeneye about this film that I dislike. And I, I mean, in all honesty, that's pretty much me with all the Brosnan films. And But out of, having said this, um, you know, out of all the Brosnan films, and I love all of them, this is probably the one that I like the least. Um, and that's Ooh. that's not saying I dislike this film. I, I this film will still rank very highly on my rankings. But um, out of the four that he did, it's probably my least favourite. Um, having said that, again, I still love this film. So yeah, uh, the one the one thing that I actually I picked out one thing that I don't like about this film is the title. Maybe we'll talk about that. But um, I think we brought that up in one of the episodes before we talked. I think it was Noah. You brought up Licence Kill. You had questions about the the naming of the the film, but. This is the one Bond film that I... And maybe this in Quantum of Solace, where I'm like, what's this title? Like, it was originally meant to be Tomorrow Never Lies, and then I think a typo in one of the production things made it Tomorrow Never Dies, which really has... 
I think nothing to do with it. But anyway, I'm just jumping ahead probably. Big can time. I, it's a good film. <laughs> can I just say that I think I had Goldeneye second. I love Goldeneye. Um, but Goldeneye does look dated in a lot of parts. I didn't see pretty much anything except for like the mobile phones that look dated. This film yeah. really holds up. It looks like it could be a film from the 2000s, which I think all three of the other Brosnans maybe don't hold up, but this one, just for some reason, it there's nothing in it that really cringeworthy or really dated. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, I think the only thing that maybe does, the, the title sequence looks a little bit dated oh, yeah, just for, for the sure. graphics. But, I mean, even as far as the story goes, uh, these Brosnan movies are very much what 90s action movies were and you don't really see action movies like this nowadays but at the same time i think that tomorrow never dies even like said opposed to goldeneye the action itself feels a little bit more modern uh maybe it's because you know there was uh, so much going on in a lot of these scenes and they did tone down like if we look at the we'll get into it later but if we look at the bike chase which was obviously meant to be a repeat of the tank chase in goldeneye they tone down kind of the goofy gags a little bit, so it holds up a little bit better as an action scene. But yeah, I think I think you're onto something there. The, the movie itself still feels like you could release this today, and this could be you know a, a good throwback Bond movie. Um, yeah. Well, I guess I didn't say anything about that. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I, I, even though the phone, like, yeah, it's a it's a Sony Ericsson, it's a bit dated, but. I mean, it's touchscreen technology and kind of you know touchpad technology, I should say. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily cringe at that phone, um, but uh, yeah, I, I would I'd probably agree. I don't necessarily think that the world is on enough or die another day. It dated. Um, Goldeneye, no, I, I do. Goldeneye, I uh, yeah, bits of it a day. I, I still think, in my personal opinion, a lot of the Brosnan the Brosnan films still hold up to this day. I don't feel they're entirely that dated, but they all hold up. But this is the one where there's just really nothing in there that really dates it or looks horrible, which I think, well, not enough, definitely does have. Well, one thing I just want to point out, um, we're, we're looking at a director change here, uh, as the Bras movies were known for a different director every time, and they kind of span the globe a little bit with the Brosnans. Um, this is something I'm proud of, because for... The first time and still to this day the only time ever, a Bond movie is directed by a Canadian, Roger oh, hey. Spottiswood. <laughs> oh, yeah. We should have seen a lot more polite henchmen in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Kaufman, he's kind of polite. <laughs> uh, yeah, he'd be a perfect fit. And this, of course, is uh, Roger Spottiswood, who was obviously at the time a perfect fit for James Bond, seeing he was coming off of filming Turner and Hooch with Tom Hanks and Stop or My Mom Will Shoot with Char- <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. So Classic. He was the obvious, <laughs> obvious choice to take the film. Um, he did the but, uh, I didn't realize that. I love that film. Yeah, he did one of the talented Mr. Ripley sequels that nobody saw. Uh, did a really good Canadian movie called Shake Hands with the Devil, which is based on one of probably Canada's most this famous This isn't Irving Kirshner again, is it? Are you sure that wasn't called no, Shake Hands a- with the Devil, please? Did- did he? <laughs> Would you mind if you just did this for me? Uh, did he direct Snow Dogs? Oh, we did Spitting Boris. There's a sequel to Goldeneye. There you go. <laughs> so we have a much acclaim for Roger Spottiswood here. I'm glad I'm not the only one. But um, 
yeah, he did bring a different style. And I mean, uh, Roger Spottiswood seems to get more criticism than any of the hundreds, which really confuses me when we get to New Zealand's contribution and die another day. But uh, I, I don't really understand. Like the criticism he gets seems to be that, oh, well, he just his action scenes are just very typical. Like exactly what we're saying. It's a typical movie. But I think the one thing that he was daring enough to do with this movie was make it a little bit more classic in style. I mean, everything from the music in this movie to, uh, you know, the the banter being a little bit more toned down and all that. There were, there were some good decisions made, I think, throughout. So I'm proud of Con- Canada's contribution, uh, even if that's the only time we really mention it for the rest of the series. Wait. But a um, couple other things for history here. We didn't really get a chance to talk about it that much because GoldenEye was, as we said at the end of GoldenEye episode, we could have done two, three episodes on that and still come up with new things to talk about. But uh, Cubby Broccoli, uh, we're, we have the dedication at the beginning, which <laughs> if, if you heard a little bit of laughter in the background, this is just before we started, I mentioned that my wife was watching this with me as she watches a lot of these with me. And when it came up with this film is dedicated in memory to Albert Cubby Broccoli, she just turns to me and says, who's Chubby Broccoli? Um, <laughs> some things were meant to be seen on the big screen. They don't translate as well but uh you have the blu-rays were you on vhs (laughs) no even on the blu-ray it's still a little bit too uh a little bit too blurry i guess but let's really quickly just uh give a bit of a dedication here to cubby broccoli you know his involvement we could have done this at license to kill we could have done this at goldeneye but his involvement really did end with license to kill GoldenEye, he was involved very early, but mostly it's been turned over to, you know, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson at this point. He had died between GoldenEye and this. They dedicate it. Uh, do we want to give? Uh, we had a lot of stories about him throughout the way. I mean, he's obviously more than anybody responsible for the success. I would say, in some ways, more responsible for the success of James Bond than Ian, even Ian Fleming, because even Fle- Ian Fleming would still admit that you know he struggled to find an audience and his goal was always to get this into movies cubby broccoli really made that happen so do we have anything to say about him uh before we get into the film well yeah he's just a legend in bond history um we miss you chubby um but i feel like cubby broccoli still has involvement in the bond thing as he's spawn um other ones who run the whole franchise now, so he still lives on. And uh, even when um, Saltzman couldn't go on, uh, he still stuck with it until his death, pretty much. Obviously, so we said he didn't have too much involvement, but maybe we'll do an episode one time dedicated to all the behind-the-scenes people. Well, not all of them, but key figures. Um, but, yeah, really a legend in the history of Bond. So bye-bye, Chubby. Well, we talked about... Connery being Bond and Lois being Money Penny and you know Bernard being M. I mean, you know, Chubby is James Bond. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I would agree with what you said in regards to Colin about sort of yeah, even opposed to to Ian Fleming. Um, I mean, this is a man who was you know behind every single was a producer on every single one of these films up to License Kill except for McClory on Thunderball. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just nothing really to add that hasn't been said this is this is just an icon of of the james bond series an icon of of film and um you know uh yeah they they had to pay tribute to him in some form and um they did that with text on the screen and i'm sure that um 
you know, there was a whole other amount of tributes uh, around the release of this film and everything else back in 1997. Let's just say that is the standard tribute you give for anything out of the beginning or the end. But the way Ben said that sounded like he was very critical. It's like, yeah, they paid tribute with some text on the screen. <laughs> well, they could have called it Chubby Never Dies or so. I don't know. Like... <laughs> well, I don't think that would be very tactful, <laughs> seeing as he did die. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> I guess Elliot Carver dies too, so I don't know. Well, his newspaper would probably well, still be going. I don't know. Uh, probably. You, you'd think it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> well, when um, Rupert Murdoch dies, I don't think that's the end of like 80% of media around the world. End of my job. But... <laughs> it probably is. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's the end of Ben's job. <laughs> Ben's unemployed because Rupert Murdoch cacked. Don't don't talk about that. He's my boss, all right? Leave him out of this. You laughed, but it's probably true. Uh, So let's jump into the pre-title sequence, which uh, I I kind of have mixed feelings on this one, but um, basically we learn through, again, lazy text on screen, uh, a terrorist arms bazaar on the Russian border. uh, And uh, that's basically all there is to this. I mean, it's, it's an arms bazaar, and uh, we find out very quickly that Tanner is now much taller and black. Uh, we don't know when that happened, but he also changed his name to Robinson. Uh, a little bit of an awkward transition from characters there. They put a lot, I feel they put a lot of effort into bringing Tanner back in Goldeneye. And then obviously, well, he's out now and they've got another one in, which in, in some cases, I think Robinson actually was better, but we'll get into that later. Um, so the Arms Bazaar is going on. They're monitoring it from back home. They find out there's some nuclear weapons there. We keep hearing about this man on the scene, and uh, the, the Admiral is ordering them to basically you know, drop a bomb on this place or before they find out there's the nuke. So missiles are on its way. The White Knight they keep referring to sees something. <laughs> we have this hilarious scene, which it's only hilarious because we have covered all these, but where Robinson is saying, yes, White Knight, I do see what you're looking at. It's a Jeep. And then I'm just waiting. Of course, that's not always heard. I'm just waiting for him to be zooming in on some, you know, female terrorist cleavage with the cleavage cam at that point. <laughs> no, look at this. <laughs> that would have made a great throwback. Yeah, opportunity. <laughs> uh, but no, there's nukes there. So White Knight, we find out, is James Bond. Uh, we're introduced by finding out that he has a vendetta against smokers in this film. Um, <laughs> he's going to punch a lot of them throughout the film. <laughs> but he gets the nukes out. We have a, a chicken race between jets uh, flying at each other. There's a backseat driver, which I don't know why he was so careless that he just knocked him out. This is not – that's something Timothy Dalton would do, just punch a guy. Pierce Brosnan should be machine gunning everybody. <laughs> backseat driver starts choking him. Pierce has to drive with a stick between his legs. He hits the ejector seat and uh, gives the classic backseat driver line, which um, – I have to say, uh, uh, one of the things that I always bragged about this movie for was that it. this was, again, it was the one that made me understand what everybody talked about James Bond all these years when they talked about Bond girls and uh, Bond villains and Bond you know, puns and one-liners. The one-liners in this kind of are a little bit forced, and I think the backseat driver line is uh, one of the good examples of that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, overall, I think that it's a, it's a good opening sequence. I've always looked at this. I think we had this conversation before. I can't really remember, but I always looked at this as the only one that really was a standalone sequence that didn't have a lot to do with the movie, but 
did somebody mention before that Gupta is shown mm. in this sequence? Because I picked out that he was, and I don't know how many times I've seen this. As I said, I've probably seen this more than every other Bond movie outside of, you know, maybe Goldfinger and uh, Thunderball. But I've never actually noticed it's so blink and you miss it that he's there. So do we even consider that a tie to the plot or is that just a lazy effort where they feel like they have to tie something in? Because I don't even really understand why he's there in this. I think it is. Yeah, well, I guess we needed to correct ourselves from when we said that Octopussy was the last, oh, that this was the last. Um, well, he's at the bazaar buying the, um, what is it, the GPS encoder or whatever it's yeah. called, which will play in part in the next scene. So uh, I think it was always intended, but yeah, it doesn't, it kind of, the actual action sequence doesn't really have to, too much to do with it. And I suppose I should keep talking about it. Uh, <laughs> Oh, I didn't know you were done. Uh, <laughs> I, I kind of have mixed opinions about this title sequence too. It's just largely unmemorable. It's just into a base, some bits with planes, and he's it's done. Like it's, I don't hate it. It's just the stunts aren't too impressive based on what we've seen in the past. It's some cool stunts, but it's mainly just. Loud explosions. Um, don't know why James Bond has a code name when he works with MI6 and calls himself James Bond everywhere else he goes, <laughs> but um, whatever. Uh, yeah, Robinson. I like Robinson, but why didn't they just call him Tanner? Like, I do not understand mm-hmm. that at all. Because do we even see Goldeneye Tanner again? I don't think we do. Um, His world is not enough, isn't he? Yeah. Is he? Yeah. Yeah, well... Regardless, he wasn't in this one, so they should have just called him Tanner. Um, but I like Robinson, though. He'll play a part in a lot of these, and he plays the same role as Tanner, so he's Tanner. Best Tanner ever. Yeah, Robinson <laughs> is the best Tanner. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's an, it's decent. I don't love it. It would probably rank in my bottom 10, which there's only 24 films, so that's not too bad, but it's just... Largely unmemorable. And then the Admiral there, that is, I think we mentioned it last week, Jeffrey Palmer, who co-starred with Judy Dench in uh, As Time Goes By. So um, they got them together, who I guess he's a pretty esteemed British actor um, playing the Admiral. But, yeah, this is not one of my favourite parts of the film, that's for sure. Um, Yeah, I, I pretty much echo all what you guys are saying. It's... I mean, it's a good opening sequence. It's not brilliant, again, based on what I said in the opening, but I think it's the the least memorable out of all the Brosnan opening sequences. Um, it's, you know, it's not terrible. It's, it's it's you know, good, good action sequences in it, and we've got a bit of humour there, like like Colin mentioning about the cigarette. He's, he's war on smokers in this film, like really kicked into gear. Um, and, you know, it's kind of... Harking back to Goldeneye with like you know badass Brosnan blowing shit up and just flying off there. Um, I I do happen to love like stereotypical Russian guy who's like that would make Chernobyl look like a picnic, and then like the admiral who's basically you know like oh yes we're we're the we're the military we'll be in control of this we're the best, and then like they discover there's a nuclear bomb and just that look on his face like he's fucked up he's quick to blame the Russians like can't you keep anything locked up. 
No. I think you've also fucked up a bit there too, mate. What's with missiles that can't self-destruct? They're out of range. Like, help them if they accidentally press launch and it's like flying towards London. Oh, sorry, we can't, you know, self-destruct this missile. We'll just have to destroy London. <laughs> um, and I do love oh, the... Oh, well. <laughs> I do love the dogfight between um, Bond and the random Russian guy and kind of, you know, ejecting him up into the, the plane, which always I always wonder... Like, why does that not snap Brosnan's neck? Um, why does the pilot have a uh, eject button for his co-pilot? Like, if he hated him in the middle of the... Oh, shut the fuck up, eject. Um, and, like, what is it so far with Brosnan films and ejecting? We saw this in GoldenEye and we're back again. Um, but, yeah. It's his I... steeple. <laughs> Roger That's... Moore was funny. Brosnan ejects people. <laughs> Good point. Um... But yeah, it's it's there. And, and Robinson quickly, I think I talked him up at, uh, at one point in one of our episodes, um, but I love Robinson. He's one of my favourite side characters of all of Bond. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of agree that he should just be Tanner, I guess. I mean, I, I, don't, I still like Brosnan's Tanner, but, um, you know, he is Tanner, but kind of adding Tanner Jr. or Tanner B. Like, um, but I, I enjoy... Tanner Jr., the very unpopular <laughs> character. <laughs> and I, I do like, you know... That never these... got past the pilot, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Judy in these scenes, like, what the hell is he doing? His job! Like, that has trailer stamp written all over it. She's so in the different in this film already after the first one, I feel. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, that's one thing I wanted to talk about. We'll, we'll, we'll just get into it now, because this is almost the last time we see him, <laughs> sadly. Pretty much. It's such a small role in this. And in some ways, I actually think that works because as much as we loved M and especially the introduction, I mean, she's famous, as we said, for that misogynist dinosaur speech. But we all kind of agreed that they maybe maybe overdid it in selling her character, the points they wanted to make with it, whereas just, you know, one or two scenes less would have worked. And I don't think it's just because she has less screen time in this. I just think that, that she fell into the character more. She understood more what she was doing. But I think that M's a lot more enjoyable to watch in this, despite the fact she has almost nothing to do. Yeah, well, I think you could almost, like, even though this isn't true, you could almost put it down to the story of, well, she may have been just a bit new uh, as M in Goldeneye and she was still mm-hmm. learning the ropes. Um, that's, a, that's how you want to fit continuity. Yeah. In, in, you fit everything <laughs> well, in there. Because he does this mention your predecessor kept this in the... Uh, the cupboard and stuff like that. Um, so you assume that she's relatively new. Um, so <laughs> let's just assume this is two years into her job then. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think the world is not enough. Is an exception. They tried something new, but I just think as a rule, the M character works better as like this than uh, what is in modern Bond. Like we're never going to have a new Bond film that doesn't have a huge involvement from M. Um, so, and we never see her in the office or anything, but I think she is so much more comfortable as is Brosnan and just the whole production amongst this crew, even Samantha Bond, um, they just all work so much better. And I am, she's kind of like, if we're being frank, she's a bit of a bitch in the first one. And in this, you enjoy watching her, um, and she, you root for her as the leader like you did with Bernard Lee. I yeah look, I'm still very high up on on all of Judy Dench's roles as M in both Brosnan and Craig's, and I love the way they kind of really develop the M character, 
into what we see, you know, recently um, with with Ralph um, in in uh, Spectre and Skyfall. And I know we talked a lot about in the Spectre one about sort of the MI6 crew and kind of how involved they are in the plot. I, I'm more of a fan of how, like, the MI6 crew are involved in kind of these Brosnan films. Like, yeah, like, even with Moneypenny, like, she's kind of a bit more out of the office now and she's still kind of that assistant person, but she's still kind of, I think, a bit more involved than just sitting in a chair and, you know, waiting for a hat to be thrown on a pole. Um, but, I mean, I, I think the interesting part too with, with again, with still female M is we still have to sort of have a little brief, you know, stand-up girl power moment when he's like, I don't think you've got the balls to, have to do this job sometimes. And she's like, that might be true, but I don't have to think with mine all the time. Like, you know, like, that you go, girl. Um, but I, I, and it's I the second of... movie in a row that we've had reference to Judy Dench's balls, which is kind of odd. <laughs> when are we going to see these? I think they're bowlers, actually. <laughs> well, she does have short hair, but um, but uh, like I, I just I, I love. Already, <laughs> I love I love her role in this film, like how she's kind of in the you know the the action rooms and kind of the action stations and really keeping an eye on how things are going at the start and we see it at the end and you know even just that scene which we'll get to of course in the car when they're just driving around sort of you know in the back seat there and the discussions like yeah I Judy is just yeah the best she, I love Judy she's so good um, let's get into the title sequence now uh, and the title song. Which uh, I, I really wish we had a little bit more history on this because I've always been very. I know Ben's going to defend this song. Um, he might be the only one I'm thinking. But uh, talking about the song first, Cheryl Crow does the theme to "More Never Dies." The song was originally meant to be Katie Lang's, which the song they retitled as "Surrender" plays on the end titles. Um, I don't know if we want to get into that much on here, but there's a lot of these stories where it's like we remember the uh living daylights one and everything and we've talked about you know alice cooper in man with golden gun it's something that they do they they will have artists submit songs for them and then they have their pick but there's no doubt that i think the katie lang version was intended to be the song because it's using the score from this movie i mean the music the themes that david arnold writes in this throughout the soundtrack that is part of her song. And uh, I'm not really sure why they went with the Sheryl Crow version, like why they were unhappy with the Surrender, because if you look online, the majority of people will say that Surrender was a superior song to Tomorrow Never Dies. I, I'm not really if anybody has the history on that, Ben, your encyclopedia, maybe you'll to fill us in. But on overall, in my opinion, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, the song, I don't mind it. It's not I hate the song. It's just, it's it's one of those songs where I'm okay if I don't hear it, you know? If it comes on, I might listen to it. If it doesn't come on, I'm not crying about it. Uh, it's just okay. I think it could have been a little bit bigger. But it does have, like like I was talking about with Roger Spottiswood, just intentionally doing more of a throwback with this, the 60s. It has that 60s sound to it that fits Bond, I guess. Uh, so the song itself, okay. The title sequence... You know, it's funny because I've always looked at all of these title scenes. I think we even mentioned in the last episode that Goldeneye going forward, there's really only one title scene that doesn't work, do- doesn't work, and that was, you know, the one that wasn't done by Daniel Kleinman. But rewatching this, I don't really think I was wowed by the title scene either. It, it kind of felt like it was your typical, the lazy, you know, end of an era Maurice Binder ones from the 80s, where it was just random silhouette shots. And this time, instead of being random silhouettes it, it, or in 
you know, glow in the dark body paint. It's just circuit board nudies and <laughs> electronic uh, breasts and stuff. I mean, it's it's just kind of odd and it's all very one dimensional. There's not a lot going on that's that interesting. So uh, I'm I, I don't really think I'd consider myself a fan of the title sequence anymore. Uh, I'm kind of just a marginal fan of the, the theme song. Together they work, they're okay, but like I said at the beginning, I think this is the one part that the movie does look a little bit dated. Yeah, if it comes on, I'm not listening to it. I don't like this one at all. Uh, there's some a little bits in there that say, oh, that sounds all right, but it's just so boring. I just cannot stand listening to this. I never listened to this one. Um, I just There's something about the Brosnan ones outside of Goldeneye I just don't get into like well there's not enough it's decent but let's not speak the unmentionable but this is just boring it's got no life to the soul that's exactly what it sounds like (laughs) (laughs) no great talent as a cheryl crow impersonator (laughs) you're the musician on here (laughs) Uh, yeah i just i don't like it um it's easily in my bottom five, maybe bottom like seven or something. Um, as for the title sequence, it's interesting because it's kind of like um, a mix between bits I hate or don't hate, but bits that don't work and bits that I think do look good. The black and white on the white backdrops. I think every time they have that, that works quite well. But then, yeah, techno boobs and stuff like that, it's just looks really jarring and Goldeneye doesn't look that dated in terms of the title sequence, but this is one aspect that does look dated and some of it's just like, ooh, that doesn't look too good. And then it looks really jarring when they cross over to real-life actors in there from the techno stuff that they've got going on. So it's just a big mess of a title sequence and really... In a week's time, I won't remember much about it. This is really unmemorable. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's a great one. It's not like it's the worst. There is some definite stuff that's going for it, but some of it just looks pretty bad. And after those that song and the title sequence and the pre-titles, from here on out, I think all of the film gets better. Like um, It's only up from here for me, but Ben's going to have some different things to say here. Well, just quickly, uh, the unmentionable sounds like this. Hey, we go. Oh. <laughs> just two more, and we will never have to hear it again. Well, or will we? Think that's that's what you think. Um, just quickly on Colin talking about um, surrender and KD Lang. Um, yeah, I was just reading a trivia point here. John Barry apparently was approached to do this again. Uh, James Bond. He turned down the opportunity because a lot of his um, disappointment with it was that uh, basically the producing team came to him and said, we've got the song, this is what the title song is, you can't work it into your score. So he basically walked away and said, no, I'd like to make sure my score is worked into the title song. And then David Arnold, who ultimately would do it, um, he wasn't happy with that as well, but that's why then he got Surrender and then used kind of themes from the song in Surrender and then used that as a as an end credit song. And it's interesting, Colin, you are saying that a lot of people think that's a superior song. I mean, I'll talk about my thoughts in a moment of, of the Sheryl Crow song, but I, I, I really do like that, the Katie Lang song. And listening to it in the credits, it's 
I was sort of really thinking like this could have been a fantastic title song. Um, but having said that, I I I honestly have never been able to put a an, a finger on why. But I'm not saying it's the greatest Bond song of all time because I'm not an idiot. From a personal perspective, this is my favourite James Bond song. I I just wait, I, wait, 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 repeat. That. You just said you weren't an idiot. <laughs> personal opinion. I'm not saying it's the best. I'm saying it's my favourite. Um, so I just I just I love this song. This is a song that I can I can crank up really loud and just and just really burst it. I love the introduction of kind of the dun and it's like falling and then it goes into that dun like it's such a throwback I feel as you were saying Colin to sort of the the old Bond songs and just Cheryl Crow's vocal ability I think is fantastic and and the the real Bond sounding music and it's like like throughout it I think is fantastic I don't think it's boring at all I just love it and lyrically it's it's kind of I'm guessing meant to be like from the point of I'm guessing Paris, maybe more so than. Here um, you go, where Ben explains the lyrics of Bond's. <laughs> but like in all seriousness, the lyrics of this song, like we, we're always quick to bag out the lyrics of Bond songs because they're not exactly brilliant. But I I love the string of lyrics here. I love it when they're they're talking about "Darling, you won. It's no fun. Martinis, girls, and guns. It's murder on our love affair." Bet, but bet your life every night while you're chasing the morning light. You're not the only spy out there. I fucking love those lines. I just that's think they why why in then. Well, but, but then at the opening start, darling, I'm killed. I'm in a puddle on the floor waiting for you to return. It's <laughs> darling, <Harry Garber>. I'm killed. <laughs> How is she singing if she's killed? I, I really think the lyrics of this song are one of the better songs lyrically in James Bond. Um, you know, it's not just higgledy piggledy, um, bloody aha. Um, but yeah, I it love it. just and, like Cheryl Crow. And I actually, I, I, I'd never seen the film clip of this song, funnily enough, and I watched it on the Blu-ray, and um, a lot better than Tina Turner's efforts in Goldeneye <laughs> in terms of, of the film clip. But, um, yeah, and title sequence, wow, I didn't think, I thought there would be some kind of middle ground here. I I am a real fan of all the Brosnan films that incorporate the film into the, the title sequences. We saw it in GoldenEye with kind of the fall of the Cold War and sort of the, the sickles and the hammers and all that sort of stuff. We see it in World is Not Enough with the oil, we see it in Die Another Day with, like, the scorpions and the torches. Like, this we see it with the media and the TV and the satellites with the diamonds. And I don't think this looks dated at all. I, I Am I the only one here? Obviously, I am. I think this still holds up very, very well. Um, the the element with the bullets going through all the TV screens, I think, was fantastic. The the diamonds being satellites, sort of, you know, in you know, real sort of tying into the story. I love kind of the sneaky TV screen, you know, scanning over the woman like, oh, there's a face. Oh, we're about to see the boobs. Oh, no, let's cut away. Um, and obviously, <laughs> it's media-based, so the whole microchip woman sort of, you know, coming through that, that screen. Like, I just, I love it. It's fantastic. And one thing, which I don't know if I mentioned in Goldeneye, one thing that I absolutely love what they do with the Brosnan films, and they continue it on into the Daniel Craig films, is the actual on-screen use of the logo, like the font. And, like, we, we talked a little bit about it in some of the other films that they bring the title up in the screen to kind of correlate with the lyrics of like, you know, oh, they're saying a view to a kill. So let's write the words a view to a kill in line with Duran Duran singing it. 
but just the way they work the on-screen logo and kind of it just goes in well with the overall title credits i, I love how they from this point on in bond films they do that but um i'm very high on this song i'm very high on this opening credits so uh yeah, I'm very high too, in general. I'm very high in yeah, general. Yeah, I was going to say, there's <laughs> and, a running and, theme here, and you're going to understand Ben's opinions by the end of his statements. <laughs> and, and, and another thing, too, that I also love, which, again, they do in the Brosnans and Into the Craigs, is kind of when we see the jet flying off with the afterburner, how that then breaks into the screen, literally breaking. Um, and I just love how they incorporate that into it. So, yeah. That's my two cents. Well, now that Ben, the I'm not an idiot, idiot's done, let's continue. This is the guy that defended the blinking fish. So yes, that's right. On. Let's just remind everybody. Um, so the next sequence sets up the plot. Uh, the sinking of the Devonshire. This is basically one sequence can explain the entire movie. So... Uh, a British ship, the Devonshire, they're going along about their business. They're all enjoying their great naval work as seamen. And uh, <laughs> all of a sudden, along comes Stamper at the helm of the stealth boat. Uh, and they have a massive drill that can sink an entire ship. And uh, the purpose of this is, of course, tying back to the pre-title scene, which it's so vague that uh, it, as many times I've seen this, I still hadn't picked up on until now. Uh, they're trying to get this encoder. Uh, so they sink the Devonshire, the stealth boat, which, by the way, is this is one of those things where I think there was an obvious attempt to make this a little bit more of a classic throwback film. The, the stealth boat interior set is so phenomenal. Um, it's, it's one of the best sets we'll see in a long time. Uh, I love that. And uh, basically, when they retrieve this encoder uh, after sinking the ship, uh, we're introduced to Carver, so he's at the helm uh, holding his keyboard and uh, watching a bunch of screens and coming up with a headline. So it's a it's a very, very, very easy way to introduce that the villain of this is a media mogul. Um, he's a sadistic mass murderer media mogul, uh, which I don't know if it's really a play on the times or just a play on all times. Uh, it, it was It was a clever idea for a villain, but I'll have some more opinions on him along the way. And he has this conference call, which, <laughs> again, throwback to classic Bond, just the around the table, almost, this is a Spectre-like scene right here. This is Carver's version of Spectre. And we see Michael Wilson, of course, as one of his henchmen here. And uh, they're just talking about all the, the dastardly deeds that they commit, which really are kind of funny. Um, they include uh, forced browser crashes, basically. If you have problems with Internet Explorer, blame Carver. Um, <laughs> We have a presidential pedophilia. It's Apple. Let's be honest. This is a precursor to Steve Jobs. Yes. The presidential pedophilia is my favorite, though. Um, the pre <laughs> pictures of the president with a cheerleader and uh, release the pictures anyway. It's so over the top and um, so like forced in some ways. But I, I guess I will get into a little bit of my opinion of Carver here because it's such a classic introduction to him. Uh, the whole typing British sailors murdered and his line, there's no news like bad news. I always hated Carver. Uh, like even, even when I loved this movie and this got me into bond, I'm like, wow, that villain was just kind of annoying. Like, you know, we, we talked about how Denby was just kind of a little bit annoying and maybe intentionally annoying, but Carver always bugged me. And it really wasn't until maybe the last two or three times I've seen this. So within the last couple of years, that I really started to like Carver and like 
how over the top he is in this. Having said that, there are moments where it doesn't really work with him, where it does come across as forced, and I think maybe that's more script than anything. There are a lot of script problems with this movie for obvious reasons, but overall, I mean, this is a classic introduction to a Bond villain here. Um, it, 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 this basically could have been a Spectre scene, just if Spectre was, you know, Rupert Murdoch or Steve Jobs, like you said. Rupert Murdoch could play a good Blofeld. Um, uh, and we should watch what Steve we say Jobs. in case, like, we end up on like some Rupert Murdoch uh, paper. But, um. Yeah, we're gonna make his hit list, so we're being careful. <laughs> I don't know anybody who works for his papers, so um. yeah, <laughs> I'm sure Rupert Murdoch doesn't have any other enemies that he would need to pick on Double Oz Seven. Twenty five likes on Facebook. <laughs> 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 24 now Rupert just unliked us <laughs> 30 by the time you're listening to this hopefully we could find six more listeners um yeah the the Devonshire stuff is kind of definitely spy love me vibes there um but I agree I love the stealth ship though and we'll get to that at the end but that's great um yeah Carver let's face it he's not a top 10 villain but i like carver he's completely over the top completely campy but i just think it works this is just a stereotypical bond film so you may as well go all out and have a roger moore type villain in there um jonathan price great actor um he just really plays up to it. it's very theatrical uh like um very pantomime kind of uh villain um but it works uh his plan is a bit dumb and the whole, everything about this film is pretty dumb. But if you just accept it's dumb, then it's, you can have a lot of fun with it. Um, so he's not the greatest villain ever, but he really does command the screen when he's on it and he works. There are some so forgetful villains and one thing's for sure that Carver is not forgetful. Um, well, forgotten, um, I love his introduction. I love writing the headlines and stab bro, just having fun with my headlines. And then I love, I don't have the, all the quotes here, but I just love his little monologue. He has, I want newspapers and what does he say? Radio and TV and this and that. <laughs> yeah. I love stores. that. That's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Cause it's just so over the top and so ridiculous. Um, but I, I, I could watch that scene all the time. I love that kind of little monologue bit um he could easily be a member of specter 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 like he could be the one controlling the media inspector's favor or something but damien mcclory more so than um, dominic green <laughs> yeah <laughs> but again this is post cold war and the golden eye was about the cold war but now you've got to move on and this was a hot topic and i guess colin you said it's always been a hot topic but like this Rupert Murdoch and uh, media ownership and stuff like that. Um, there's no news like bad news. So I guess it makes for a good plot for a James Bond. It was current and it works. It's done, but it's probably not too far off the truth, really, of being real. One thing I've always seen with this film is that people always rip shit into Carver and the plot of this film. And I think, Noah, you hit it on the head there in terms of it being a hot topic. I mean, this is kind of in that period where 
you know, media ownership was a huge big thing. I mean, cable networks were becoming a thing, 24-hour news channels, you know, things that we take for granted today. I mean, this is really when these the sort of things are putting out there. And, and I've always loved Carver. Um, and I just, I love the over-the-topness of him. Jonathan Price is just so good. Like, he said theatrical. I mean, obviously, he's a very renowned theatre actor and kind of really established that into, you know, numerous roles over the years. Um, you know, just before this, I mean, he was in the film version of Evita and um, kind of, you know, he's gone on to what, doing Pirates of the Caribbean oh, movies. Oh, again. And- well, hey, you mentioned it, not me. Um, <laughs> so- oh, no, actually, you mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> um... But, yeah, I just – I love him. And, like, yeah, you you both covered it, you know, perfectly in terms of his introduction. I love kind of that hiding his face and seeing the headlines and just that, that monologue he has when he's like, I want books, I want films, I want, you know, rolling coverage. Like, it's just so good. And then, I mean, it is a bit cringeworthy when they zoom up on him and he's, like, sort of, you know, got his fingers together. There's no news. Like, bad news. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a little bit OTT, but that's fantastic. And, um Carver, we meet Carver. Oh, God, Carver. He's Hans, you know, 16.0. But, uh, not Hans, um, Red Grant. God, I've got Hans on the brain. Um, but, yeah, he's fantastic. And the stealth boat, again, you mentioned it's so good. Um, you know, it's for something that I said was, what, Brosnan's least best film and stock standard, I'm still obviously going to talk it up a, a huge deal. Um, and... Yeah, I love the slow motion. We was it licensed the cube? We we're bagging out the slow motion. We kind of, I mean, this I think was filmed in the same tank they filmed Titanic in. Of course, Titanic was released basically the same time as this movie. This um, didn't have man boobs. So. It didn't, but we did still have slow motion and kind of romantic, like oh, music. So I was just waiting for <laughs> Celine Dion to start playing at some point. Uh, and just first note, got to mention soundtrack. Uh, one of my favourites. Love oh. the music for this film as well. Just wanted. To, I know Colin, you're a fan of it too. But um, top five soundtracks, I would say, in terms of just the music used in this film. Yeah, I completely agree. And it, we'll just again. We I know we've mentioned it in the past, or I've mentioned it, but David Arnold really got this job for one because as we all talked about, well, at least no one I talked about, Eric Serra's soundtrack for Goldeneye was not so well received to the point where they had somebody else write music to replace some of his just for to have some decent action music. But David Arnold came into this, you know, having put together a James Bond compilation, just taking modern artists, having them reinterpret Bond, and he sort of produced it. And they loved that enough. They're like, well, let's let him score a Bond film. And uh, I completely agree. I mean, I think that this is, it's not just the best of the moderns. It really is pretty close to top five of all time. I mean, it's such a fantastic soundtrack. And the mu- the music really does add to this movie, too. I mean, that's the other thing to say. If you had the score from GoldenEye in this, the movie doesn't work at all. And this is, you know, probably the most criticized uh, Bond, even over Die Another Day. But the music really elevates it here. So thank God we had David Arnold. Um, I could not deal with the elastic band <laughs> pots and pans in the cave sound <laughs> in this one. Um I want to just before we get into the next section, I just wanted to quickly talk about the the original plot for this. And again, this is where I think sometimes there is a Bond movie where they put everything they have into it and it doesn't work. Uh, and then there's ones where everything was really going against them. I mean, GoldenEye came out and the standard thing was to get a sequel out within two years. This is what the Bond movies had always done. This is what all sequels were doing at this point. You have like a two year gap. 
but a lot had changed since the 80s. I mean, you look at how big these movies are and how big the action scenes are and how elaborate it is to stage this. They really did have their hands tied rushing to get a two-year uh, gap in between these. On top of that, the original plot they had was going to be even more you know, modern and with the times because it was supposed to be dealing with the whole handover of Hong Kong from you know, British rule to Chinese rule again which happened at this time. And that was supposed to be the original plot. And then they ditched that for whatever reason. And they were still dealing with Hong Kong. Cause I think the one thing that can be a complaint in this is that Hong Kong feels like it's just sort of pigeonholed into the movie. Like why is Hong Kong in here? Most people look back on this now and they're like, well, it was because of the whole Jackie Chan, you know, he really broke through around this point. So they were capitalizing on that, which isn't really true. Cause this movie was in production before Jackie Chan had his, you know, American breakthrough or North American breakthrough. But the original plot would have dealt, it would have done a lot more, uh, would have had a lot more to do with, you know, the whole political angle, which isn't really even mentioned in this. So uh, I personally like the whole media storyline. I just feel like the Hong Kong stuff doesn't really fit. And that's where it does become a bit more of a stretch. But is there any way that this could have worked with the whole political angle or would that have been a little bit too... I don't know if the political stuff would have worked in a movie that's a little bit more lighthearted like this. So uh, I actually ask. prefer the media stuff. Sorry, mm-hmm. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I thought you'd finish it. Um, where's Hong Kong featured in this film? Well, the whole idea of he wants to break into the Chinese market. Oh, right. Okay. I thought you meant as in location. Yeah. Sorry. And then you have the Chinese authorities or the Chinese yeah. spies and stuff like that. Wiley. Which that's the part that I mean, that's the part that I really do feel like it's forced. You don't understand why they have an invested interest. And when Carver's mentioning, you know, well, my entire plan is to secure broadcasting rights in China. You're like, well, you rule the rest of the world. You're, you're not going to, you know, commit mass murder and really have a, a pretty poor plan in the end to accomplish this. Uh, I like the media. I just think at this point they'd already secured the whole, well, we're going to have Michelle Yeoh. You know, we're going to have uh, China involved in this for political reasons that that's probably the main reason it doesn't work. I just love, does he not say that he has media like a satellite all over the world except China? So, like, North mm. Korea has Carver Tomorrow <laughs> News in it. and Cuba. Cuba. Yeah. Ethiopia. Yeah, there's a few. Well, Ethiopia maybe, but um, there's Tajikistan. a few. Af- yeah, a few African countries. Well, it's like we- Tasmania where they don't really have television. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> No, like uh, Tuvalu, uh, do they have tomorrow? <laughs> um, uh, we could go on with all these countries around the world. Antarctica. Well, that's not a country. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just I had to laugh at that, that China is literally the only place. Um, but, yeah, I, I haven't read too much into the Hong Kong stuff, but I guess it's just them trying to stay relevant with like, there's no more Cold War, so we've got to stay relevant with issues and tensions around the world. I don't know if it would work particularly with what we've got, but I think they could have made a decent Bond film out of it, but you'd have to imagine they would have to be a bit more serious than this film was if they were going to do something like that. Well, we see a little bit of an element, and I'm not just saying this bring up Die Another Day, but we see it obviously <sighs> in the hotel scene when he's, I mean, you know, this is our turf now, Bond, and uh, we'll get to that film, but of course, um, Michelle Yeoh was meant to be in a cameo in that scene. But um, I see what you're saying, Kyle, but I, I, I don't know, I, I think it still works. I think, 
Um, in terms of kind of the mentions of China, I mean, China's really emerging at this point as a, as a world superpower. I mean, we know what they're like today. And, you know, as as a country with over a billion people and kind of, um, you know, communist nation, and I think it's, it's very relevant that um, a, a media mogul wants to kind of make his stamp in a country of that size. And I still think it's an issue today that some companies can't have that in China. So I think it's it's very relevant in terms of, making that a plot point um but i but having said that i i like kind of yeah it would have been extremely relevant 1997 was the year that the the handover was made so it would have been fresh on everybody's minds so um that i think would have worked very very well as well if they had decided to go with that storyline we should say that uh you mentioned I Another Day and they brought that up. We should say that Zhao was a big reader of Tomorrow. Uh, he loved that paper. <laughs> Didn't realise Tomorrow went into North Korea, but okay. <laughs> yeah. He was their North Korean editor. <laughs> yeah. um, Something let's, like uh, that. Let's cover Stamper while we're here too, because uh, Stamper is one of those henchmen that I'll, I'll just kind of give my opinion to start this off. He is not... Jaws. He is not uh, uh, you know, a classic henchman like Odd Job or Knick Knack or Mayday, but I think he's definitely one of the stronger of the moderns. If you look at the last twenty years of Bond, and yet I'm really not sure why. Because I mean, th- there are elements of him again that really work, but I feel like he is underutilized. And there's physical characteristics like the fact that he has the two different eye colors, and even the, the sheer size of him. He's a huge guy. But the movie doesn't really seem to focus on those things. And I think those things would have made him a little bit more of a classic henchman. But again, like I love Stamper. I think that he is the type of henchman you want to see in a fight scene. You know, you don't care if Bond fights uh, Carver in the end, but you want to see the Bond versus Stamper showdown. And, um, you know, obviously his introduction is basically, I don't think it was intentionally a throwback, but he's, he's pulling a Max Zorin and just, you know, taking yeah. a machine gun and slaughtering everybody in the water, um, which, again, another, I don't know if it's a, really a plot hole. I don't know why they're so concerned with how many survivors there were. Like, tell me how many survivors there were for my headline, because they could make up whatever they want. But, yeah, like, it's, it's a sadistic thing. And having a villain like Carver, this is, I think, the one thing that I would have preferred. I can't believe I'm bringing it up. I would have preferred in Die Another Day. <laughs> if your main villain didn't do the fighting and you just had the henchman for that, because we didn't need in the, in the old days, like with Goldfinger, we didn't need the villain to do the fighting. I mean, that's what the henchman was there for. And that's what I really do like about this is that Carver's not a fighter. You know, I call him, almost call him Hans there, but Stamper <laughs> is there to do it for him. And uh, for that reason, I think Stamper is more memorable than he probably should have been. Uh, yeah, he's okay. Um, I keep saying that he's like some, cross between like an aha reject and like <laughs> ivan drago from rocky four or something like that <laughs> he just looked like a product of the 80s like the sweet swedish 80s pop band or something like that which is not a good thing that's not what you want out of your henchman um but yeah he he is red grant 6.0 but i would argue of all the red grant imitations he is the best like he really is so much better than Hans and um, Krieger and Necros and stuff like that. So he he's he's pretty good. He's got a lot of physicality to him. Um, 
I love the showdown and like him slaughtering the people just sets his character up so well and he is one of the more dangerous henchmen and that works. But again, as I think you said, he's, he is lacking something in terms of making him just his appearance or something, a, a memorable henchman quirk um, other than his Red Grant imitation. But he definitely does the job. I wish, like, do they ever explain who Stamper is? Like, they have a nice touch of bringing, tying him to Dr. Kaufman, but, mm-hmm. like, why is Carver hanging out with this aha reject? Like, why why is Stamper so high up in the Tomorrow Empire? Like, is that ever explained at all? It's a newspaper thing. No, I mean, well, it's a well-known in newspapers. There's always a random a blonde German that's just there to protect the paper. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't realize is that Ben is the stamper of his job. <laughs> yeah, I am. I, I really well, am. Like, what's stamper, more sandal than stamper. <laughs> <laughs> don't get that, but I'll take it as an insult. Uh, <laughs> it's not an insult. He has a tie. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I like Stamper. I'm probably the lowest on him out of everyone because he is a bit unmemorable. And I think Kaufman is more memorable. But I think he does the job. He's no Xenia from last film, but he does the job and he's probably the second best henchman of the Brosnan era. Depends on what you classify Renard as, but I like him. He does the job. To all Formula One fans who listen to Double Lost Seven, which really wouldn't be any, um, Nico Rosberg is a dead ringer for Stamper. Google it right now. But um, no, I love Stamper. He's he's oh, he's, he's such a good henchman. Um, I you, you stole what I was going to say there, Noah. Uh, easily the best of the Red Grant clones. Um, and we we such a big part of the movie. Um, you know, he's he's in so much of it and. I just, I just think he's, he's so kind of, he's so German, which is great. Like it's, it's that, that's not meant to be a bad thing. It's just, it's fantastic. And I'm just reading here on, on the uh, trivia on the, that uh, Goetz Otto, I can't say his name. Um, when he was apparently called in for casting, he was told he had 20 seconds to introduce himself. He said in five seconds, "I'm big, I'm bad, and I'm German." And that got in the part. So, um, and just kind of a, a few kind of bits on his sort of character. Um, apparently in the movie novelization, um, <laughs> it was revealed that his hobby is making snuff porn. And then apparently <laughs> he enjoys kidnapping, young, kidnapping young women and filming them while they are being raped and tortured and sells what? the videos on the black market. That is what? why... Hey, there is a man filming the execution of the naval officers, um, and <laughs> no. the one the one that I I'd read many years ago was that it was originally planned in the script that um, he'd had a brain injury and couldn't register pain. It was pleasure instead of pain. So of course that idea, of course, was sort of used um, in World Is Not Enough with Renard. But um, yeah, no, I, I I think he's great, and there's you know he's just got that that factor about him that makes him a fantastic villain. And, um, yeah, in terms of, yeah, I don't know what we will classify Renard as, but if I'm to think of the Brosnan henchman, yeah, I don't know. I'd probably put him just above Zhao. Um, I know, I think Colin, you're very high on Zhao, but, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I like Zhao. I'm not anti Zhao, but I'm just kind of thinking, like, you know, you had that conversation with me, like, where would you rank Carver amongst the Brosnan villains? Um, so I'm just thinking that in the henchmen. But anyway, yeah, go Stamper. You you are awesome. I want to see the um, the Stamper BB film that he made. <laughs> <laughs> well, not with the rape, but. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, you see, at least now we know where. Stamper fits into the Carver organization. I mean, his purpose is that he heads up the the Carter Media uh, Group's snuff porn film. <laughs> well, he's watched Tomorrow, to dominate uncensored. every market, so that includes that too, I guess. But um... his, his uh, introduction to the the inaugural broadcast of the Carter uh, or Carver <laughs> snuff porn network was interrupted as well which explains his vendetta against blonde the two, the two assistant channels gets launched fired again. Yeah. and then becomes a subject of the film um, but yeah I don't know what Raymond Benson I have that novelization I haven't read it before but I've got it at home <laughs> maybe I need a, to pick up book chapter 8 <laughs> kidnapping women and making films Stamper like, removed her clothes and killed her <laughs> he filmed it <laughs> What was Raymond Benson thinking? (laughs) He's bidding to snuff. He's the Spielberg. He's the Spielberg of the snuff porn industry. (laughs) (laughs) He's revered the world over. (laughs) (laughs) He's a visionary. Um, (laughs) That's kind of. I know Stamper's supposed to be a bad guy, but that's kind of ruined it for me. That's a bit too far, isn't it? Kidnapping and raping women. We don't want that in a Bond film. No, we don't. Uh, there's really no response. We just need to end this conversation. This is going. We don't want this in Double R Seven either. Stampa. <laughs> All right, let's move on from snuff porn to brushing up on Danish. Um, so we have a series of scenes here. This is the introduce the MI Six scenes or reintroduce them. Uh, it's amazing. This is outside of the pre-title scene. This is, uh, I. It feels like a long way to introduce Bond into the film. Like he's yeah. absent during two or three sequences here, where everybody else is around. Um, but I kind of like that again. That he just sort of jumps into the movie. This is very from Russia with Love. Like he just gets the call twenty minutes in, and you know this is what you have to do. Uh, we find out that he's a very cunning linguist, um, <laughs> which we all knew about Brosnan. We have the great moment between M and Money Penny with the don't ask and then M don't tell. <laughs> I don't know if it was the other way around. And uh, once Bond does arrive, we have the the briefing in M's car, which again, like you talked about, M's not in the office in this film. She's in a car, and I kind of like the change in locations here and the fact you have everybody there. You know, Money Penny's in the front seat and. Uh, M's sitting there getting loaded next to Bond. <laughs> I'm glad she wasn't the one driving. Uh, and uh, we basically find out there's 48 hours before the fleet uh, does invade China, and that, that's basically what this is. It's it's a repeat of the Spy Who Loved Me's plot, where we're going to, or even You Only Live Twice, you know, we're going to force these two countries to war, uh, in this case, to sell, you know, TV subscriptions, newspapers, magazines, whatever. And uh, Bond has a kind of good rapport here. Like, this is, again, more in line with what we're used to i like the introduction to money penny in goldeneye but just like with the m i felt like it was just a little bit too forced where they're trying to make it more modern this is more traditional like 
it's it's more of a play back and forth they have whereas it used to just be well they're gonna flirt back and forth now it's almost like they're taunting each other a little bit so i really like the as short as it is the money penny scenes that she has with bond here and then we get to q for what i'm gonna say in the brosnans is q in his prime uh even more so than connery both brosnan and desmond llewellyn just seem to love these scenes and here Q has been demoted to a rent-a-car clerk, which, again, such a brilliant idea. Like, if you're going to have Q on the scene, let's fit it into the story a little bit. And he's really giving him his gadgets, but it's primarily the one gadget. And this scene is so good. This was used, I remember, in all the trailers uh, mm-hmm. before I even saw this. I remember seeing all the advertisements. And these moments were in there about, you know, you want, you know, uh, crash control and... Uh, uh, it, insurance life insurance or whatever all the things are just implying like you you have a license to kill not break the traffic laws q's very concerned with bond's driving now and uh we find out it's a remote control car which is a cool little trick and uh q doesn't really get how to do it even though he invented it and bond of course is bond and he's uh, able to do anything so he takes the thing for a ride on his little uh iphone app and uh, it's just a really fun scene. I love the Q scenes, and it, there's so much fun in the Pierce Brosnans. I mean, I think it's a highlight. So uh, all of these uh, MI6 introduction scenes here, I actually think that these scenes in some ways work better than the ones in the other Brosnans. I, I love the M in the car, and I love the money penny in the front seat and Q the rent-a-car clerk. Uh, this is one of my favorite films for all the MI6 crew, even though they don't have a lot to do with it. We have one scene with Q in this yeah, they really get rid of the MI6 just to get it over and done with pretty early, which I guess is in line with traditional Bond films. But um, yeah, I like the MI6 stuff because there is a sense of urgency because this is a national cri- or worldwide crisis um, that it isn't just going to be Bond going in, flirting with Money Penny, going through the door, getting the mission. Like, there's urgency. He needs to get out there and do this right now. He needs to get to the party, figure out what's happening. Um, so I like that in the car, rushing around, you've got the police escorts uh, following. And, yeah, I think I think it's great. And Robinson, again, and uh, I'm sure Ben hated this, short-haired money penny, which um, <laughs> I, I don't understand, though. Like, it's not a hatred of short-haired women like Ben, but... Um, <laughs> Well, he doesn't hate. Uh, whatever he can deal with. Wow! That one. Uh, <laughs> I just point out my mum has short hair, and I love my mum. Well, don't let her listen to Double R Seven. <laughs> she doesn't. She'll be wearing a uh, wig uh, next time you see her because she heard what you thought about a short head wig. <laughs> Along uh, with you calling your dad an idiot, so <laughs> your parents officially you are exiled out. from your parents' house. Um, yeah, I don't understand. Did Samantha Bond like? always wear her hair like this and then for Goldeneye they told her to have long hair but then for this one because for the rest of the time I believe she has short hair mm-hmm. um, I can't quite remember World is Not Enough but she definitely does in Die Another Day in this one so I just don't understand was it just a case of that's her normal hair because it's weird um, <laughs> not her it's short weird. hair her short hair is fine it's just weird that they did that that they changed it up so much um so I don't understand, but Ben's expert on women and short hair, so he can cover that. Um, yeah, that that was that. I like the urgency, don't understand the short hair, love the cue scene so much. 
it's he's becoming more and more of a limited role because obviously he's getting older. It looked like he aged about 10 years in the two years between Goldeneye. He's really getting on a bit here, old Desmond, but he still delivers. He's got that cheeky old man kind of persona. Um, and this car scene with Bond showing off at the car is just easily one of the most memorable scenes of the entire film. That's when I think of Tomorrow Never Dies, I always think of this scene. Um, ever since I was younger, that was a highlight. Um, so I love the Q scene. It's limited, but it works. It's probably the last traditional Q scene we get. We'll t- I'm sure we'll talk about the car soon um, when we get to that scene. But, yeah, you're right. A lot of the MI6 stuff going on works really well for this film, probably because they didn't try and do different stuff. They just stuck to the traditional, well, kind of. They had the car and the quickness, but... For the most part, they gave the original roles of what they're supposed to be for each character, so it works. I'd love to know, with Bond at Oxford brushing up on a little Danish, did, did he legitimately go to Oxford and was like, you oh, know, I might actually learn some Danish and just happens to bed his teacher? Or, like, is this just some girl on the side he's met on, like, Plenty of Fish or something like that and he's just, you know, going to hook up with her at Oxford? Like, you know, just randomly at Oxford bedding a Danish teacher? Why not? Um, Denmark's only contribution to the James Bond franchise. Um, hello, Princess Mary. Um, yeah, no, I, I love this scene kind of in the car. I mentioned it before, and um, yeah, you mentioned Noah, like the police urgency and the police escorts. And if you really watch the motorbikes, they're like dragging this car, they're like driving alongside of it. Um, they're barking. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how they sound in, in England. Um, They've got... We warned you about the accents in this episode. We're sorry we didn't warn you about the sound effects. <laughs> MI6 has dogs and carriages that they get around. I, I, Snow I, dogs carrying MI6 crew. Um, I do love kind of, yeah, Colin, you mentioned it, just sort of the car bit with money penny in the front. I just love how like the window roll while rolls down and there she is like, yo, here's your ticket, your cover story. And then it's like, M's like, you've got to pump her for information. <laughs> like <laughs> you just have to decide how much pumping is necessary. It's like, if only that was, but it was the case between you and I money penny. I love that little interaction. Um, and yeah, the Q bit, like I don't really have anything to add that hasn't been added. I mean, you know, the, just the chemistry between Brosnan and, and Desmond is just so good. And it's, yeah, it, it, as you said, no, he does look sadly like he has aged a lot in the last two years. And it apparently was meant to be, uh, this was meant to be his last film. They were planning on writing a, a final scene for him in this film. But, of course, they would eventually do that for The World Is Not Enough. But, um yeah, and Colin, you mentioned it, the the whole trailer bit, that, that I always would do the same, see it where, you know, they would like, oh, uh, you know, personal injury insurance or whatever, and like, oh, you know, accidents happen, they always show a scene of Bond, like, getting punched or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's I don't really have a whole lot to add on anything. The, the one thing I will say, uh, the BMW 750 is the ugliest James Bond car in the history of James Bond movies. I love the... Over the Lotus? Yes, the Lotus is beautiful and sleek and a, oh. a gorgeous car. Like This, this looks is like a... something that uh, Sharon would be driving around taking her kids to the supermarket. This is just a plain mum car. Like It's not glamorous. <laughs> it's not sexy. We had the Z3 Roadster in, in Goldeneye, and we're going to have another. I think, I think it's the Z4 in, in World Is Not Enough, and then, of course, in... 
we get the Aston and the Jaguar in Die Another Day. Like, this is, I mean, look, when we get to the Craig films, one criticism I have of that is Craig drives around in dad cars, but like, yeah, this is a, this is a mum car. Uh, I love the idea, the gadget, the whole remote control thing. It's fantastic, but on the outside, this is one piece of shit, ugly car. Are you calling mums piece of shit ugly? No, no, mums are fantastic, but like, <laughs> it's it's because Ben has seen too many short-haired moms driving around <laughs> in this car. And he forms this opinion. <laughs> Quote Ben Waterworth. Mums are fantastic. I want to point out that obviously, given that BMW had this massive contract for James Bond film, that uh, pay attention in the uh, garage scene later on where the bad guys happen to drive Mercedes, BMW's number one rival. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, the cars do all look very similar in this one. Um. Yeah. Let's jump into the uh, CMGN launch, uh, which the first half of this film is all around the launch of his you know, news network and uh, the party, of course. So this is your Bond goes to meet the villain slash Bond goes to meet the, the or Bond goes to a party, casino, whatever. Basically, the Bond orders his uh, <laughs> martini in this scene. But we get introduced to all the other characters. So within, you know, a half hour, 40 minutes, every major character has been introduced here. So we get Paris, uh, wife of Elliot Carver. Uh, We get the other one, Michelle Yeoh, uh, (laughs) who's really the only one in this. Um, She's she's from Hong Kong. And uh, what what is her job? She's a she is she an aspiring news anchor in this or she's a Chinese news agent. Yeah, and of course he wants to put her on the air. Uh, it's it's kind of a fun scene where you know Bond goes off to flirt with Carver's wife, and Carver's right in front of his wife flirting with Wei Lin. Uh, but this this scene with Paris is really interesting here. I I'm very torn on Paris as a character because again I think the idea of the character is really good. The, the fact that we're seeing an ex of James Bond's, we've never really seen anything like that before, and we haven't really seen it since. But maybe it's just not developed enough. Like, usually I can have at least a theory as to why something does or doesn't work. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about this or why I don't think Paris works as a character. Because I don't think it's just being underdeveloped. I think there's a lot of other characters that have just as little screen time. But the idea of the character is so interesting. that We even have this thing back and forth where they're ordering the drinks for each other. And she's like, the gentleman will have a martini, shaken, not stirred. And then he's like, you know, she'll have a tequila. And she's like, no, I won't. He's talking about how she changed. I just, I always picture like when he knew Paris, was she like a girl's gone wild, you know, middle of Mardi Gras, the cameras come by, she's flashing her boobs, you know, downing her tequilas. Um, Paris definitely has changed if that's the case, but that's the type of girl Bond went for back in the day. And, uh, you know, following his introduction to Carver, where the two meet, again something with a very traditional and bond that they're both playing these identities they both know what the other one's up to kind of but they're playing up on it it's kind of like the gold finger scenes like a lot of things in this maybe just the constant script rewrites they didn't have the chance to develop things but it's still an okay scene um bond basically gets you know called out with the two henchmen or whatever you know we find out gupta's there and and he's isolated the audio and uh, they know that Bond is up to something. He's not a banker. And we have two henchmen sent, which it's always been hilarious to me that they send two henchmen to take out Bond. And one of them is like 76 years old, like the guy in the back. And he does all the punching. Like we talked about where does he find these people? Like why is Carver hiring guys that, you know, probably 
have like a pacemaker already in them <laughs> to do the fighting against a British Secret Service agent. <laughs> you thought Roger, no wonder Roger Moore was still Bond. <laughs> yeah, this guy was. You know, we, we talked about that contest. What was that in Goldeneye? But somebody won a contest to appear in a Bond film. <laughs> yeah, this won. was the guy that won the contest back in the man. <laughs> yeah, henchman in James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Just took them this long to find the right role for him. Um, but then we have uh, a quick fight scene before Bond interrupts the whole thing by uh, the disrupting the entire launch of his news network, uh, which is a nice dick moment from James Bond. Bond always has to be kind of a, a dick at some point to the villain just for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one thing I really like in this, though. That the fact that you know Bond has this identity as a banker, and uh, I don't know, has the scene come up at this point? I didn't make a note of it, where Gupta is telling Carver, you know, oh, well, he's a banker. It, you know, oh, it's not the case. I don't even think that's so, Not yet. Yeah, but, so yeah. at this point, Carver really has no reason to believe that he isn't a banker. I just wonder, is this every banker he's suspicious of? Is this what Carver does? Like, they just pull him into a back room and start beating on them like is there some poor guy that like five minutes earlier than this like there's another banker i need you to get some information of him it's just being assaulted the guys they're, they're sitting there pounding on me so stop it i don't know what you're doing i, I just sell savings accounts gic's and mutual funds why are you hitting me? Like, i want to know how many other poor bankers have just been put in the hospital because carver doesn't like them yeah that's a good point uh surely he's not the only banker there um yeah, I like the scene. It's always one of my favorite ones or most memorable ones of the sea, uh, the season, the movie. Um, and it is kind of the Bond meeting the ally, or the, what am I saying tonight? The villain in a public area. Um, but then, like, yeah, he's using a disguise, but then he's like, Bond, James Bond. It's like, well... Do you really want to see say that when your ex girlfriend is at the party and he's married to the guy you need to use the disguise for? Um, and he ran out on her. He doesn't know she's going to cover. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, why would she cover? She's married to him. Um, and then I like when Carver says to Waylon, "Oh, I don't remember your name from the guest list." There's about a thousand people there. Like, he's got pretty good memory, <laughs> Carver. He's dealing with a media con. con- conglomerate conglomerate <laughs> yes thank you <laughs> and he has to and he remembers thousands of names on the guest list um and what if there wasn't someone called waylin on there um so that was funny that when did they get james bond's name on the guest list and did, did he just randomly know james bond even though he only got on the guest list a few hours beforehand but that's really picking the path of film now um yeah, I like the meeting with Paris um, when the, they've got the drinks. Could they not have got, like, Anya back or something as the wife? Because they had a scene where she ordered the drink like that. Um, so maybe Anya could have been back. But I, Paris, I think you're onto something that there's potential. It just wasn't realised enough, and they didn't delve too much into it. It's just like, Oh, she's married to the villain. Oh, and they had a past together. The end. And that go. It's just really shallow and they don't dig deep into it. Um, So I think there's a lot of potential with Paris, but a lot of it falls flat. But she still gives a good performance anyway. Um, And when you watch this straight after Spectre, you'd see so many parallels between her and Monica Bellucci in this film. Um, 
which I guess they are playing the similar role of the secondary Bond girl. So uh, I like that they've got this past and um, they play it up. And I love Carver and Waylin. And Carver's pretty keen on getting her working for him, even though they've just met. Like, why didn't they take her out the back? Uh, he knows nothing about her. Um, I love it when Bond uh, turns the lights off and me and Ben were talking about this a few weeks ago with his assistant. You're fired! (laughs) Didn't do anything wrong at all. Um, So poor secretary. I wonder where she is today. I feel bad for her. Um, Yeah, so I I really enjoy the scene um, and it just sets up the dynamics between a lot of these characters here. Oh, I'll get to her. Um, it's it's actually quite funny you mentioned Monica Bellucci. We've actually recently discovered that Monica Bellucci read for the role of Paris Carver. And <laughs> Pierce Brosnan's come out and said that the fool said no, uh, not to cast her. And it's hilarious the parallels between her and Paris Carver, considering that you know um, she read for the part. But, um, yeah, before I get to, to dear old Paris and um, the lovely PR lady... Um, this whole kind of introduction scene, like the bit where where Bond meets Carver and then he's promptly ignored because there's a hot chick there that he's trying to, you know, get a job. That's me at a party. I meet someone. Hey, this is Ben. Hey, how you doing? Oh, random hot chick. Walk away, ignore me. Like, that's me at a party. I'm James Bond in that moment. That's what happens when you're the sandal. Yes. Ben, let's be honest. We're guys. That's all of us in life. Yes. Um, but but I mostly the, Ben. I love the fact that Wei Lin's just hovering in the background, like over the shoulder of James Bond. Like, um, and but the thing that kind of amazes me about this one is that I mean, basically the reason why Bond ends up getting the shit beaten, belted out of him, is because he's basically you know going to to Carver and like asking him questions, like, oh, so maybe you might have been involved in this, but like. You know, you're in a room packed with people, James. Like, I know you're a, you've are you got to try and get him, you've got to pump him for information. But is this really the time and the place to do it? <laughs> like, and hence why you soon get the shit beaten out of you. Um, I, yeah, the whole sort of interrogation scene, like, oh, you've got an urgent phone call and he kind of plays along with it. And then we've got these henchmen guys. Like, you mentioned the 70-year-old. The one that baffles me, there's a guy standing there with a baseball bat not doing anything. Like, you've got a baseball bat, man. Bash the shit out yeah, of James Bond. He's got a Bond. game he's got to get. Like, why are you just waiting? Like, this is a, the thing that amazes me. And random guy in the room who's like, looks, oh, yeah, they're bashing him up. I'm going to watch my boss on TV. Um, and I love the fact that if you're actually listening to what Carver is saying in this press conference, he's actually saying, I want worldwide domination. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Okay, um, just tell everyone that you want to have that um, in your own subtle way. Um, Paris and James, the introduction, I love it. <laughs> like, walks up, oh, I never knew what I would say before I see you again. Slap! Um, now I know. Was it something I said? How about I be right back? Like, it's just so <laughs> That's good. That's a really good line. Um, and, you know, we get the iconic line that we hear about 300 times over, which has obviously been recorded separately when we hear it on the recording. But the, tell me, James, do you still sleep with a gun under your pillow? Um, and, like, I've always, we, we've joked a lot about Terry Hatcher and Paris Carver and kind of just her limited screen time. Is she a Bond girl? All this sort of stuff. And kind of just, you know, I've rewatched this film twice in the last couple of weeks. And 
I probably have to say that I, I I agree with what you're both saying in terms of it could have been elaborated on more, but I, I kind of get the feeling that it was done... It was like, what more could she have brought? Like, she's there for the connection with James. Like, she's there sent to try and get a bit more information. He beds her, like, okay. And then she's killed. Like, I kind of think it's ultimately the the perfect amount of screen time for the character. Um, Terry Hatcher apparently was Terry Hatcher probably wasn't uh, apparently wasn't happy with how sort of how underused she was. And I'm a big Terry Hatcher fan. I loved Lois and Clark. I love Desperate Housewives. Yes, oh, there's that dickhead Ben again. Um, so I, I love her as an actress. But I, yeah, I just feel that as a character, that's that's all she brings. And you mentioned kind of sort of Colin that yeah, she was that sort of wild girl sort of back in the day. And I, I really think if you sort of watch her and analyse her as a character, she's clearly married Carver for the money because when he, when Bond asks, like, so you married him, why did you marry him? You know, he said he loved me. Like, she never utters the words, I love him, or like, you know, oh, it was this, or he swept me. Like, it like it, a very similar plot line to Spectre. Yeah. <laughs> it's clearly a marriage of convenience and lots of cash. So, And even the Wikipedia description of Paris Carver is uh, his trophy wife, Elliot Carver's trophy wife. So, um, well, can we just say that it's more of a rebound for Elliot because he lost his dear wife, uh, Rosie, in the early 70s. So he was looking <laughs> for more love after the death of his wife who cheated on him. Um, yes. So I don't blame Elliot. He needed a companionship after the death of Rosie on <laughs> Sam Monique. Um, and I just want to point out, on a side note, Daphne Deckers is her name, uh, listed as PR person for the Carver Media Group. She is, oh, like, talk about random side characters. She's in this movie for 30 seconds and says, like, three lines. <laughs> Every time that scene, like, no one was watching this with me when it was at my house the other week. But just the whole scene where she's up on stage and she's all, like, speaking German, like, oh, oh ladies and gentlemen, please remain calm. Don't go for, like, why would people run out? Oh, well, that's finished. Let's leave the party right now. And then, like, I was like, what's going on? What's going on? What do you mean you don't know what's happening? You're fired. Get out of my side. <laughs> Just something about that that just... Oh, God, he's such a dick to this poor woman. Leave justice for Daphne. Like, she, <laughs> I can see this, the, the next day she wakes up sad and little Jimmy comes up. Mum, can we um, go to the shop and buy some clothes? Sorry, Jimmy, Mummy lost a job. We're going to have to go down to Centre. <laughs> Shouldn't she be the one who ends up killing Elliot in the end? Yes, there's a sequel to Tomorrow Never Die. For Tomorrow, like Daphne? No. <laughs> For me. <laughs> Do you think that uh, Carver is enough of a jerk too that like he doesn't even give her a name? She's his assistant or whatever. That PR lady is what he calls her. Like <laughs> PR her lady, bring pro- me my form. Her, her name um, is probably like Mildred uh, Sampson or something. <laughs> and he's like, PR lady, get over here. You're fired. This is something he does all the time. You're fired. No, no, just kidding. Stamp is not even his name. He just called me. <laughs> It's like the scene when when she's like, I have uh, Waylon's like, I have a confession to make. I snuck in, and he's like, and why would you do that, my dear? Like you could just like, why, why, why would you he do that? He doesn't hesitate to beat up a banker, but someone snuck into his super secret <laughs> yes! guest list party where he's launching this big network, and oh, I'll get you on the team. Let's let's re- let's reverse <laughs> Asian the role woman, scene. Come over here. Let's C- reverse communist too. Like she's probably a. She's guaranteed a spy. If you have like a communist you know, news anchor that wanders into your party for your news network, 
You should be shooting them in the face right there. <laughs> and let's let's be honest. This, this having is conflicts with China and the, the Chinese woman who snuck into your party. <laughs> Elliot Carver is a sexist. Let's be honest. Let's reverse the roles here. Waylin walks in. I'm a banker. Oh, yep. James Bond comes in. I have a confession. I snuck in. Get out! <laughs> like... well, at least he doesn't make snuff films. We can give that to Elliot. Good job, Elliot. Um. Yeah, uh, let's, I'll just go back to Terry Hatcher again really quickly, because I, again, I completely agree with you, Ben. I think that she's used just as much as she should be in this. There, I wouldn't really subtract any of her scenes. I wouldn't really add to it. The idea of her character is great. The only theory I could really give, and it's unfortunate to say this, but like in all honesty, I'm almost as big of a Superman fan as I am of James Bond. So Terry Hatcher has been Lois Lane and a Bond girl. Like, this should be my dream girl. And <laughs> sure, she looks fantastic, but uh, she's not much of an actress. Like, in either Superman or this, I don't think she's that good of an actress. Uh, I would have rather they got Monica Bellucci for this. I think that she would have been fantastic. And if she plays this role, I think it's a memorable role. I think it's a more memorable role than Lucio Sciarra or whatever. But. What? Uh, yeah, if anything, that would be my only theory is that Terry Hatcher just she doesn't really have the acting skills to pull this off. And one thing can I just quickly add, sorry, Noah, that um, with Terry Hatcher, she apparently accepted the role purely to fulfill her then husband's lifelong dream of being married to a Bond girl. So uh, <laughs> there you go, Colin. If Jamie decides to be an yeah, actress, she is the trophy wife. <laughs> <laughs> And, and apparently, too, she was pregnant throughout this entire... An unexpected pregnancy uh, yeah. throughout this entire film. So that's why well, he was excited because she was a Bond girl. It's his lifelong... Yeah, as soon as she was cast, he's like, let's go right now. <laughs> Honey, I got the part. Bend dream. over. Which, was this guy only, like, 20? Like, this is his lifelong dream. Um... Well, but plus, I mean, let's be honest. I think she misinterpreted that. If you say it's my dream to be married to a Bond girl, you're probably saying it's your dream to be married to Honey Rider or uh, <laughs> Xenia Onatop or something. Like, <laughs> I don't think that that when he said that, he's like, yeah, uh, go become a Bond girl because that fulfills my fantasy. <laughs> While she's off on set filming, he's like boning Eunice Grayson or something. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Who is this guy anyway? He sounds like a dick. John Tenney. <laughs> Best known for his role as Fritz Howard on the TNT series The Closer, The Closer and Major Crimes. There you go. Oh, it's always been my dream to be married to someone on The Closer. <laughs> uh, what's his end of the deal? Like, she's off filming this. Married? What does he do? He was in Green Lantern. No, they're not married. They divorced in 2003, oh, had a daughter, oh. Emerson Rose Tenney, and he's now since married producer Leslie Erdang. <laughs> Oh, was she on. a bo- is she going to be on Bond twenty five now? <laughs> She's not even the producer of a Bond girl. Or has like... he got a new lifelong dream? <laughs> what what has she produced? Um, Step she... straight down. Well, hang on a minute. Um, she has. <laughs> produced... that we're judging people off what they've produced in entertainment. <laughs> Um, she has been involved in, um, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, oh, hold on. My the dream. Closer. <laughs> Is she the producer of The Closer? Was this all just to get work? Mr. Pip. 
<laughs> it always been my dream to be married to someone who produced Mr. Pitt. Well, she's the, produ- the producer of The Seagull, which her husband happens to be the star of. Like, Jesus, don't work out of the house anything, guys. Like, I think we can take from this that John Tenney is a dick. <laughs> This started on trashing Terry Hatcher. Now we're all like, that poor thing. <laughs> and meanwhile, their daughter, treated her up. their daughter, their daughter, Emerson, who was born Pam. because of this love, is like a philanthropist. I can't even say the word. And apparently he's known for charity work. Oh, that's the daughter. That's the, the daughter that was in the stomach of, of Paris Carver as Bond was boning her. It was always his dream to have a daughter who did charity work. <laughs> yeah. She could fulfill your need, John Tenney. We need to get the daughter of Terry Hatcher's baby bump on the air. <laughs> we need that's, to settle the story. What's it all? That's an interview. So, uh, Emerson, what's it feel like having James Bond's penis touch <laughs> your head in the womb? Ben, we did not need that imagery. <laughs> I just this sounds like a stamper film. <laughs> She only exists because John Tenney's lifelong dream was for his wife to go off yeah. and please him. That, that's know, the episode title. Film. That's the episode title right there. James Bond penis touching her head in the womb. <laughs> it's or not. not. <laughs> Jeez, Tenney. Um, can we just... Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> This is sorry. We get on getting on with this film, otherwise it's gonna be another five hour episode. But I'm just noticing here there's a there's a celebrity snap of Terry Hatcher and her daughter, and the subtitle is Terry Hatcher and Emerson grab yoga to go. <laughs> like, why is that a thing that we need to see on a website? <laughs> it's always been John Teddy's lifelong dream that his wife bites <laughs> yogurt with her daughter. <laughs> Oh, Does this new oh. wife, the producer of hit Mr. Pip by Yoga? <laughs> oh, this guy's what? If, if you search this, there are so many possibilities here. Terry Hatcher takes daughter Emerson car shopping. Terry Hatcher and daughter Emerson lunch together. Terry Hatcher, daughter Emerson, uh, skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> Is that oh, what Terry Hatcher is known for now? Just taking photos of doing everyday things with her daughter? <laughs> well, she done Please anything since Terry different Hatcher. housewives. <laughs> Please tell me that she's... Not John Tenney, she hasn't done. <laughs> ben, has Terry Hatcher remarried since? Um, Terry Hatcher has not married since. Oh. oh. Poor. John Tenney's a dick. Let's just <laughs> She's still heartbroken over John. Oh, te- oh, Terry, come on, come here. I'll marry you. We need to get Terry Hatcher on Double R Seven. The trash on do John like Tenney. A bachelorette thing with Terry. <laughs> Behind door number one, Vargas. Door number two, Stamper. Terry's like, will you take this rose? No, you're Terry Hatcher. You were married to. John Denny, I'm not going. <laughs> Will you be a Bond girl again? <laughs> I'll marry you if you fulfill my lifelong dream. <laughs> Doing a Bond film. Oh, all right, let's move on and just say John Tenney is a dick. And can we officially now say that Terry Hatcher is, or Paris Carver? is the other woman, and Waylin is the Bond girl. Can we officially That's put right. this to rest that 
Paris Carver <laughs> is the other woman. I apologise yeah. to all Waylin fans and Michelle Yeoh fans <laughs> out there. <laughs> you started episode one off with a bang, bang. All the Waylin <laughs> fans. Uh, let's move on. Uh, if we needed any more reminder as to why Hong Kong is in this movie, we find out that Elliot Carver was once a 16-year-old in Hong Kong. Why? We never really find out. Uh, he was just there, and that ties the film together. He there when Bond died in Hong Kong? <laughs> well, he was working at the newspaper. <laughs> he wrote the paper. It was, an was newspaper. newspaper. <laughs> it was Tomorrow that was covering it. I need to do the prequel where he's the young, up-and-coming, budding journalist who wrote the article <laughs> of James Bond's death in Hong Kong. <laughs> Um, yeah, so then we have Bond in Paris getting it on. Uh, we find out that Gupta is on to James. This is the scene I was talking about, uh, where tell me, James, you sleep with a gun under your pillow is isolated. And, uh, Paris basically tells Bond of, uh, you know, Carver's hidden vaults, you know, his printing press, which leads Bond there. Bond sneaks into, you know, the, the printing press factory, the newspaper factory or whatever, he gets into Carver's safe. We find out that Carver also really likes heroin and porn. Uh, it, was, it was the magazine Stop edition porn. of Stamper, Stamper in print. This is where the no- novel all starts making sense, people. Stamper um, monthly. So uh, after that, James finds Waylin in the factory. Uh, there's an escape scene. Waylin walks up a wall, which is really cool. Uh, James throws a guy into a printing press, which I'm, I'm going to say, as bad as this line is, this is... Uh, I would always talk to people about James Bond because I was... I didn't know a lot of people watching James Bond at this point, and people were always familiar with, again, the stereotypes, you know, the bad one-liners, and I would always reference this line. I'm like, he throws a guy... I'm like, Maybe it was just because I was a young kid, didn't really get that this is a little bit lame and there were better one-liners out there i'm like he throws a man into a printing press and there's this blood shooting all over the papers he's like <laughs> he gives a line with uh now i'm completely blanking on the line they'll what is print it anything um, these days they'll print anything these days like they printed oh. a lot of guts <laughs> <laughs> it is such a bad one-liner now that i look back on it but now but again just nostalgia i just remember well, that- being like that's he fun. gave a bad one-liner about, you know, printing anything, and he threw a guy a printing press. That's so clever. There are a lot of bad news-related puns this film, but this is the one line where, when I was over at Ben's, I came up with an alternate line, which I'm surprised I didn't go with, which was... Um, oh, this is good. This is good. <laughs> and, and I had to rewind it and mimic my voice over his roster to fit Oh, hello, I'm Irish. Um, that I'm surprised I didn't go with... Well... I guess that's what's black and white and red all over. Like, how is that, that not the line? That's brilliant. <laughs> it blows my mind that that was not the line they went with. Well, constant script rewrites. They could get the <laughs> line It was count. in there at one point. But they pleased one teenage boy who just thought it was the funniest line he'd ever heard. They pissed off another one from Snow. It was, it was actually in the script, but it wasn't John Tenney's fantasy to have that line in the script. So. <laughs> John Teddy was responsible for the rewrites because it's always been his dream to rewrite a Bond film. <laughs> and he wanted to put in that they would print everything, anything. Else. Does that mean um, if they print anything that Stamper's going to be in, like, the New York Times or something with his uh, work? Opinion piece. print anything. I'm Stamper. Well, he's made it in Harvard's vault so far. <laughs> New York Times is one step up. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, overall, I mean, I like the Paris and Bond scene. We kind of talked about it already a little bit. And, you know, rest in peace, Paris. Well, we're not there yet, but uh, good scene. And um, the, the escape scene, again, it's not like the greatest. The action scenes in this are all, as I said, adequate. It's, um, it's not the most exciting action scene you've ever seen, but, uh, you know, it has a couple of cool moments in there, especially with Waylon walking up the walls. And uh, overall, it's just like this is the mid-movie action scene, and it just does its job. We're going to be saying that a lot throughout this podcast. It does just enough to get by. Um, yeah, well, uh, honestly, I don't really have too much to add, and that's not because it's a bad thing. It's just it's the scene. I think it's great. Some great action stuff going on here. Um, as I said before, like it is kind of similar to that death is quite like gruesome, similar to he had a lot of guts. And again, uh, like that's what's black and white and red all over. Come on. Um, yeah, there's not too much to add other than, and we're getting to some great action scenes coming up, but it's just a good action scene of Bond escaping and shooting some guys and some great Wei Lin moments where we get to see that, yeah, she really is a spy, even though we all knew it, but. Yeah, honestly, I don't have too much to add, and that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's great, a great action, or good, adequate action scene. Adequate action scene. Um, I've been (laughs) to a printing press as part of my job. I got to tour a a fairly large facility in Sydney, and I I know how dangerous these places can be. Ooh, Um, And, yeah, you fall into one of those things, there's going to be a little bit more than a red stain going on newspaper. Um... And that would fuck up production for quite some time. There's a lot of people in Hamburg who aren't getting their newspapers the next day, so fuck you, James Bond. Um, but <laughs> this this whole sequence, like Paris and getting with Bond and um, just special note to Terry Hatch's um, underwear, hello. Um, <laughs> How did we forget? <laughs> well, come on. That's what I thought was the best bit. Um <laughs> Was her, her hair long enough? <laughs> it was showing. <laughs> it's borderline, borderline hair there, Paris. Bond, Bond in the in the the press and the offices. I love um, Gupta's like you know you break it, you board it. It's worth three hundred million dollars. I would break that, knowing my luck. I would knock it over. Um, and yeah, the porno and uh, my biggest thing that I was looking at was the floppy disks. That's what dates this movie. Um, the floppy disks in the actual. What do we say? License to Kill Bond doesn't do floppy disks. Well, yeah, hence why, why they use floppy disks, but they use CDs in License to Kill. Because floppy disks were floppier and 1.4 megabytes. Uh, we were missing a, a line there. My disk is never floppy. I, I wrote here, Waylin Jinx. Um, I think it should be more Jinx is Waylin in Die Another Day. Or Jinx is a yeah. extremely poor woman's Waylin. Um, well, we'll get to that. Um, the whole fight sequence on top of the uh, the printing press... Do we get Bond giving a nipple cripple to this guy before he falls oh, what? in? Like, as he punches, punches, and he, he does something on his chest. Like, I don't know what he does if he, like, gives him a nipple cripple because then he falls into the printing press. And I don't know. There's just something there that he does. I love the one-liner. Like, oh, like, if this was a, you know, a Dalton movie, that that would be cringeworthy, but... Brosnan's delivery of one-liners is just so good, I can forgive it. I just think it's fantastic. Um, and then we kind of 
get this um, the moment when he escapes, which it was it was really weird actually because you kind of you see him do the kill. Then he kind of walks off and we get the theme in the background and it's kind of like, oh yeah, Bond's getting away. Then all of a sudden we hear gunshots again and then he jumps on the little trolley thing, George Lazenby style, and slides out of the building. So it was it's kind of a bit of a weird, awkward moment that you've got like, oh yeah, Bond's about to escape and he's getting away with it. But then we get this bit. But um, yeah, other than that, not a not a whole lot. The phone um, that really is getting gadgety here. I mean, it's it's unlocking doors, it's fingerprint scanning and... It's um you know I I had a Sony Ericsson once and it like didn't wouldn't even answer a call properly it was shit but um yeah 1997 Sony Ericsson's were better than like 2003 Sony Ericsson's apparently so yeah that's about all I've got to add on that bit. Uh, we're getting into what's probably my favorite scene of the entire film here, and I'm I'm from a couple of you know brief comments we've had along the way. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Bond uh, escapes with the encoder and he walks into his hotel room and sees a newscast from the future. Uh, <laughs> and we're introduced to, if we do include him as a henchman, I'm going to say the greatest henchman of the Brosnan era, Kaufman. Uh, sadistic, hilarious, ridiculous at the same time, so over the top. This is the type of henchman that these movies really needed. Uh, he's a master of torture porn uh is that his his uh, level of the carver media group yeah well we did say they did say that stamper is kind of kaufman's like apprentice, apprentice. almost so he's kaufman yeah. like the biggest snuff man in the world or something. <laughs> <laughs> was that in the raymond benson novelization ben i'll just quickly um, go read it and i'll brb <laughs> Uh, so the really funniest part here is again, while we're having the scene, it's cutting back and forth. And this is where I think this is the best part of the movie, not just for the coffin, but for both, even the way the scenes are played, we're intercutting with the henchman trying to break into the car to get the encoder. And of course the car is all filled with gadgets and they get electrocuted from touching the handle and nothing will break the window. And then Kaufman, in the middle of his sinister interrogation, has his earpiece just <laughs> blaring. Stop! <laughs> and then he's like, this is really embarrassing. <laughs> We're having some trouble getting into your car. And then when he's talking to somebody, did you try the auto club? <laughs> did you want to make that call? <laughs> I fucking love that line so much. this is really embarrassing i'm so sorry (laughs) he asked for bond's code to get in the car which of course bond uses as you said the phone gadget the phone does everything he's able to kill kaufman (laughs) so kaufman's dead very we obviously we find out in that newscast from the future that you know uh that uh terry hatcher's dead too uh She outlived carver's (laughs) dream for her to be a bond girl as well and um this goes into the first of the chase scenes in the movie where Bond drives everything. For, he becomes the backseat driver in this as he escapes in his remote control car, uh, which, again, is another one of those scenes that obviously the trailers were full of that cue scene. But I remember when this movie did open, you know, whenever you'd be watching TV and somebody did an interview or, you know, there'd be a news story on it. The car chase scene was the one that they always showed along with the bike chase later on. Uh, so I don't know if it's necessarily like rewatching it this time. I don't know if it's necessarily a Hall of Fame chase scene. Mm. There are some good gags in there, um, but you know, just the idea that Bond's having a blast. Like we talked about how Pierce Brosnan and Goldeneye. I mean, it's arguably his best film, 
but it wasn't him at his best. I think one of the interesting things I found in watching this is that no matter whether it's Pierce Brosnan or Sean Connery or anybody else, I think the best performances from these Bonds often don't come in the best movies. They come in the ones where they just seem to be enjoying themselves the most. And if you look at Brosnan in this car chase, it's very clear he's having a blast even filming this. So um, I like the car chase even just to watch Pierce's reactions, kind of laughing at some of the things that are happening. And then we do have the cool car stunt where it jumps right off the roof and lands in the building. So uh, a really good chase scene, not the best of this movie. The best will still be to come, but uh, the action scenes are definitely improving at this point. Well, I would argue that this is a Hall of Fame one. Mm -hmm. Ever since I was a kid, this is what I've remembered this film for, the car that's remote control. And um, I remember talking to my dad about this one, and literally the only thing he could tell me about Tomorrow Never Dies is, oh, that's the BMW uh, remote Shit control bombs. one, isn't it? Um, yeah, so it lo- looks ugly, but it's just really iconic for this film, and it's just a great chase, I reckon. He's not even driving. He's in the back seat, and it's awesome. I love the wheels that pop back up, and then the ending of it is just great. I love it so much. Um, and the scene before that, probably the best scene in the film, Dr. Kaufman, is just amazing. Um I love how they cut between him and the guys trying to break into the car. It's so funny. They probably could have went further with the lengths that they went to to try and get into the car. Um, but then my question would be, why didn't they just implement the for your eyes only, just the car blows up? Like, that would have killed all of them. Um, and no, but Ben, that kills. wasn't a bong kill. Um, Kaufman is amazing. I would call him a henchman, more of a henchman for hire almost. He's a bit scaramangerish almost. Um He's just great. The actor is um, phenomenal, um, and the character—you get so much character in a five-minute scene. Um, and yeah, the auto club is really funny, and you can't be serious. Like it was so good. Um, in some ways, I almost wish we got more Kaufman, but at the same time, it works so great as just a one-off scene of him, this kind of uh, henchman for hire type thing. So I. One of my favourite scenes, he is hilarious, and I'm not sure if he tops Xenia, because she's always on top, but he, if if he counts as a henchman, then he probably is the second best one of the Brosnan era, and he's up there in terms of all henchmen ever, but he kind of gets forgotten a bit. But the scene is just amazing, and it's quite a cold kill from Bond as well. Um, And then the Paris stuff, like, on the, the news broadcast from the future, I wrote him on a plot hole, plot hole, plot hole, and then I always forget that um, it, he says that this will be the news um, and that the cops haven't just left Paris in her room dead and not cleaned it up. Um, and then you were talking about snuff films. We kind of had Bond turning into a bit of a necro there where he starts walking oh, sh- out with Paris when she's dead before he goes with oh, Kaufman on the floor dead as well. Like, wouldn't surprise if they had the Spectre secret mirror and Stamper was filming it. That would be his latest film, like, British secret agent sleeps with dead wife. Um, I, I, had, I did have that in my notes. I just want to say it's, it's not even like he's just giving, like, a nice sensitive kiss <laughs> to her dead body. He's full on necking that corpse. <laughs> it is kind of gross. Oh. And she's been dead for at least a while now. Oh. <laughs> that blood would be cold by now, surely. It was John Tenney's dream to see James Bond make out with his dead wife. Dead okay. wife. <laughs> and it may be realised one day. Um, 
Um, yeah, so two of my favourite scenes in one go. This film is just really picking up in the second half. I would probably go out on a limb and say these string of these scenes here with Brosnan, to me, sells him as the best James Bond. He goes from romantic Bond uh, embedding... Uh, I know it's a bit beforehand, betting Paris. Then we kind of She's get... dead, though. Well, this is... I meant before the, the necrophiliac scene. Um, <laughs> yes, that's the why James... James Pierce Bond is the best James Bond because he's a necrophiliac, all right? He <laughs> maxed it on with dead Derriatta, soul. Um, you won't just see him world is not enough when he gets with Tracy. It's just wow. <laughs> Skeleton. <laughs> um... <laughs> this is a serious Ben Waterworth moment. No, I'll stop ruining it. Um... He he then goes to kind of just the way he plays sort of the vulnerable Bond and he's still, you know, trying to, you know, come across as the way he is when he's sort of in a bit of trouble. Then you mentioned about the, the cold-heartedness to, to what he does with, with Kaufman. Like, that is that is just such a, a, a cold kill. Like, he has him literally down on his knees with a gun to his head and... You know, fast forward to, to Spectre. Actually, I won't finish that sentence. You might not have seen Spectre. Nothing happens in Spectre related to that. Um, and, you it's know... It's a very I'm, dull film. Nothing yeah, happens. Nothing happens. It's, it's Daniel Craig brooding for two and a half hours. Um, but, yeah, like, he, he doesn't have to kill him. He does. I'm just a professional doing my job. Me too. Bang. And then we get, as you were saying, Colin, just like this this scene in the back of the car that he's enjoying himself. I mean, this some of my favourite Brosnan moments are just kind of his... His reactions to things. I love the scene when the tires blow out in the chase, and he presses that button. And he gets that little like, ha ha, like you know, it's, it's it's fantastic. And the bit at the end when he jumps out of the car and then he puts his hand up in the air like, oh whoops, and then like crashes into the shop, and then he kind of just you know composes himself and I'm James Bond, I'm a prick, and he walks off like, oh, it's just. It's so good. I just I love his entire repertoire of acting in these couple of scenes. It's just fantastic. The Kaufman stuff, yeah. Like if we're cl- if we're counting him as a henchman, I kind of will go back and rethink my number two henchman. Sort of going back to what I was saying before, because I kind of didn't really lump Kaufman in as a as a henchman. He's just he's so good, and like the character. And I think Noah, you were the one who said that. Yeah, we'd like to see more, but I think we just get enough that really works brilliantly. And, yeah, Colin, you brought it up. <laughs> My favourite line of this whole bit is, did you call the auto club? <laughs> Could you imagine, like, like Stamper going, oh, shit, no, sorry, let, hang on a minute. <laughs> uh, yes, um, auto club? Uh, I lock keys out of car. Can you go? Oh, we'll be there in ten minutes, sir. <laughs> And just, just Kaufman's like, oh, it's very embarrassing. Um, and he's like, I don't actually um, know if the actor. I'm, I'm guessing he really is German. He looks German, um, but was just, German. was German. Um, he's very like his his accent and his mannerisms. Like he loves to say und and ja, like <laughs> just just the way he does he's it. Italian, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, that's probably why he's was Italian. OTT. <laughs> That's right. Sorry, Rest Vincent. Skier, skier Rest belly. Rest in peace, cubby, uh, chubby Kaufman. <laughs> it's just, it's just so good, and oh, he's 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 brilliant. And the chase, oh, Hall of Fame easily. I would point this out. This is one that always, yeah, again, is always shown, and just, just the idea of it, like he's driving this by remote and he's in the back of the car. I mean, the track on the soundtrack is called backseat driver. 
um, which is a fantastic piece of music. And it's just, it's brilliant. I love the, the bazooka bit that goes th- like straight through the window. Um, the, the little BMW logo that pops up and chops the wire. Um, and just like a chase through a, a, a car park. Like if you put that down on paper, James Bond has a chase in a car park. Like, ooh, but like they, it's so well done. And, um, I think I was reading that they destroyed about 17 of these BMWs in this film. Probably should have destroyed a few more because they're a piece of shit. But, um, other than that, yeah, these, these are definitely two of the best scenes in the entire movie. Um, following this. We have Bond in uniform for the first time. When was the last time Bond was in uniform? Spy who loved was it me. Spy who loved me. Yeah. So the and last again, time this we're is like the spy. Uniform. Yeah, but like the Spy Who Loved Me, this is a very naval themed film, and it, it's I, I like seeing like Bond. You know, we had in Goldeneye where they were referencing the fact that he was a commander and you know, his rank and everything. So it, it's nice every once in a while to have that reminder that he was in the navy and everything. Um, so he's. Meeting with Jack Wade, who's back. I don't know why he's in this. Um, I, I talked about how I like... We talked about with J.W. Pepper that in some ways he did work in the first appearance in Live and Let Die, didn't really belong in A Man with a Golden Gun. I feel the same way, but not as harsh with Jack Wade in this. So I don't think there's anything wrong with Jack Wade. I mean, he still has a good amount of personality. He's not Felix, but he's a good substitute. I just don't understand why he's here. Like, There's really no purpose to him being the ally here unless you're going to involve him in the entire movie, but they don't. Uh, but I like the, the whole back and forth thing where, uh, you know, they have this expert there, check out this encoder. And he's like, this is the missing encoder from the Devonshire. Wait, I didn't say Devonshire. Did you hear somebody say Devonshire? And then he's like, no, sir. And then of course, Pierce a minute later is like, so if we use this, can we find the Devonshire? You can just picture Jack Wade, like slap face palming. It's like, you weren't supposed to say Devonshire. <laughs> I didn't say Devonshire. Did you hear Devonshire? Um, so yeah, this leads to the halo jump where uh, Bond jumps a little bit too early because they don't realize they're actually over Vietnam waters. And uh, the halo jump again, it's it's a good stunt, but unlike the, the Moonraker where there's a lot going on, it basically is just a jump. So I don't really think this you know will go down as one of the great stunts, although it's, it's a cool thing to see Bond do. When he lands in the water, he's at the wreck of the Devonshire, and the Devonshire is now full of dun, 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 dead bodies, missing nukes, hot Chinese spies, everything that Bond wants. Um, John Tenney is in there somewhere floating around because <laughs> it's his dream to float around dead bodies, too. And Stamp uh, is there, filming his new <laughs> underwater <laughs> babes. <laughs> underwater babes and graves. Girls gone drowned. Uh. <laughs> Suffocating bitches, volume four. Uh, so, Waylon and Bond. Hey, Raymond Benton wrote it. Actually, if you if you really pay attention, you see a, a dead Leonardo DiCaprio floating in the background to time with yeah, the ti- right. release of Titanic. Wasn't Titanic after oh. this? About the same December time. 1997 battles that nobody remembers. <laughs> Come back, Jack. Come DiCaprio back. versus Pierce. <laughs> so, yeah, the scene with Waylon and uh, Bond coming out of the water, now they're they're sort of loosely working together because they get captured together. Uh, we find out that Carter, ha- Carter, not Carver, has a uh, big building in the middle of Vietnam. And then we have the 
next scene where we find out that Stamper is the apprentice of Kaufman and, you know, he has all these really sick sadistic tools and, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, is again, that scene, I barely hold it together every time I watch this because I loved Tomorrow Never Dies when I saw this. And this is what got me into Bond movies because it's what helped me understand all those things that I heard about Bond over the years. Like I said with the bad one-liner earlier on, the music in this, but just the fact that this features the -the over-the-top villain explaining his entire plan to Bond, the henchman giving an overly elaborate death scene that the villain decides he wants to excuse himself from. Excuse me, I have a matter to attend to. It's every Bond cliche all in one scene. Um, I love this scene here. Uh, There's him ducking out, the -the over-the-top death. We find out that this totally fits in because my notes with uh, Stamper here actually say he's about to perform masochist Kama Sutra on Bond. So now the whole porn thing really does make (laughs) sense. I think there there might have been a a real scene in the clips there uh, in the, the deleted scenes. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a really good line here where Carver has the line, you know, the distance between insanity and genius is measured only by success. You know, that's a classic Bond villain quote. Like, at this point, I'm loving Carver as a villain. This is where, even if I still don't like him in the early parts or I find him too over the top, like, this is where over the top is just enough. And, again, is it a brilliant movie? Does it really elevate the plot a lot? All we really find out is that the Chinese General Chang is there for some reason. Waylon and Bond don't know why. Uh, they have a quick escape, which will save the you know the escape scene for next. But um, everything that's so great about classic Bond movies, they really nail here and make it so over the top. It's almost nauseating, but I still love it. Yeah, there's some good scenes here. Wade seems like he's in here because they wanted to bring back Jack Wade from GoldenEye. Because mm. really he serves zero purpose. And I kept thinking this film is perfect for Felix, not this scene. But in particular, it is like an international, worldwide incident, international incident that the CIA would be in on and Felix as a more serious character with a relationship with Bond would have worked well through a lot of this film. He could have been there in Vietnam or whatever. Um, So Wade just not sad we never saw him again because he didn't serve any purpose. He was pretty good in GoldenEye, but... Not happy to see him back. Love Bond in the Navy uniform. That's awesome. Always like to see Bond in Navy. Um, so I must have missed it. What is the Halo jump? Is it to not get caught? Like I, yeah, you basically have to release your parachute as close as you can to the ground before you slow down. So just you got to time it perfectly because you are underneath radar. And you're not detected, but it's dangerous because you've got to do it at a point where it's basically the last possible point you can release your parachute before the speed will kill you from your fall. Sounds a bit dumb. Couldn't it's a real jump. Just... It's a it's a real it's a yeah it's a real thing. Seems risky. Um... Hence why so many people die doing it. Yeah. Has Jack? Oh no, not Jack. What's his name? Oh, I can't even remember his name. Paris Carver's husband. Jenny. <laughs> Has he ever considered doing it? <laughs> yes. He he was a stuntman. Yeah. It is a pretty cool stunt. It's just like, yeah, we've seen better. And then the underwater stuff, well, we've seen better. 
but it's still all right. Uh, got a jump scare there again. Um, and then I like it when Stamp is there on the boat when they get captured. Um, I wish they did more into the torture method stuff, though. I wish we got to see some of it rather than just talking mainly about it. Well, you can go to your local snuff porn video store and rent it to see <laughs> the deleted scene. Snuff Snug. That's the name of the store. <laughs> snug. 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 Yeah, I don't know. Um, as for Whaley, and I guess we can maybe talk about her now because she's really coming in. I I really like her. She's not one of the all-time best, but she's good. I think Waylin is a good Bond girl. She fits the plot. Uh, she does the action. I was thinking about this today. Is she the first action Bond girl? Like, mm-hmm. like Pam had a bit to do with the action, but not really. Um, Anya, Anya, yeah, Anya, Anya would be it. But this, we really do get to see Wayleen get in with the action, and she is a quote Bond equal. But what I like about it is she's not James Bond. She's still her own mm-hmm. character. And when we get to Jinx, God forbid we get to Jinx, that will be them trying to make James Bond as a mm-hmm. woman. But what's great about Waylin is she's her own character who equally competent at the action and we see her kick ass in the climax, but we don't see her making a whole heap of puns or anything like that. And she's a character who she's part of the communist government and she is her own character, which is what I really like about Waylin. So and she's, she's her not... own character now. Yeah, <laughs> she's not. She's not the other woman, is what I'm getting at. Um, she's definitely not the other woman. I like her action. I think Brosnan and her have good chemistry, which Brosnan and Jinx don't really have. Oh. Um, to me, Jinx is just a huge poor woman's Waylin, and. I like the, the the chemistry. It's not a love one. Yeah, they get together in the end, but it's not a love thing. It's just mutual respect and yeah. dominating when they need to. So that they play off each other really well. And as I said, not the best character and not the best Bond girl, but I think they did a lot of good with Waylin and marginally better than Jinx. And as I keep saying, a good character, her own character. I love Way- like Waylin. So she's her own character, just to... Yeah, all right, cool. Um, going back to the the Wade stuff, um, I, I, I think it serves a purpose. I think that we, we kind of... The, the encoder is essentially an American device, if I'm not mistaken, so they've got to kind of put an element into that, and, oh, where is it? And I love it when he reveals it, and it's like, where the hell did you get that? <laughs> you know, typical dumb Americans don't even know where their items are. So if you've got to have some sort of uh, scene with the Americans, why not bring back Wade? You know, just as kind of a throw-off thing. And similar to, to Paris, similar to Kaufman, he's in it for just enough time. Like, he's not overused, he's not underused. And I think it's a perfect moment for comic relief. I fucking love this whole sequence. I love the fact he's standing there in a Hawaiian shirt covered with dinosaurs. And then we get this little scene where Brosnan, like, looks at him. Then he looks down at his shirt as if to say, like, what the fuck are you wearing? Looks away. And then Wade kind of, like, tucks his shirt in a little bit. Like, as if to say, oh, don't knock my dinosaur shirt. Like, I love this shirt. Um, and Could, of, could we have like, just had, like, one brief moment in there where he's like, did Muffy give that to you? <laughs> Muffy? Um, and one That's of my favorite... sexist, misogynist dinosaur teeth. 
One of my favourite lines in this entire movie is when he jumps out of the plane and he turns around and goes, We didn't even say goodbye! (laughs) (laughs) It just makes me crack up so much every single time. And, you know, we go, Yo, Jimbo! As he's walking there all proper in his, like, uniform and we kind of get that Navy music with the James Bond theme, that... Like it's oh it's it's good. They used the Bond theme a hell of a lot. Yeah, this maybe too that. much. Doctor No esque. You know, yeah. they just use it a lot. Um, the the stunt man in this Halo sequence, BJ Worth, eighty jumps to do it. Um, which is eight less than the eighty eight required for Moonraker for those playing at home. Um, the whole underwater sequence yeah it's it's there i love the fact that he like knocks off the breathing apparatus of the other woman and um sort of has that like finger look like you and then like you know off they pop up to the top and i love it when they go up to the surface and there's that guy on the boat who's just kind of like i don't know and then he just totally gets speared and we just needed a i think he got the point as he, um, <laughs> or we needed a, this one's for Sharky. Thank <laughs> <As he laughs> <get> you. Speed <laughs> grew. Um, the whole skyscraper bit, uh, I love the line there when he holds up the, he's like, we've seemed to grow a certain attachment to each other. Um, and yeah, I, I love, um, the whole sort of showing the tools and what's, uh, Stamper say, like his record was 56 hours. I am hoping to break it. Like it's just it's just so kind of like hmm, okay, and of course we get the the line. Oh, I thought would uh, watching your news programs is torture enough. Um, <laughs> and yeah, the jump from the building. Like um, I, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here. I'm not going to get to the bike chase, but I just love that sequence and the tearing of the banner and um, you know smashing through the window. It's fantastic. Um, Wei Lin, Michelle Yeoh. Yeah, uh, I think you covered it well, Noah. I mean, she's. Very high regarded. I, I mean, sort of with Anya, she was is kind she? of... Well, I think she's, from what yeah. I generally have perceived, she's always been very highly regarded as a Bond girl. I mean, there was lots of talks about her getting her own spin-off. Um, they tried to bring her back and Die Another Day, but they couldn't uh, work it out with Michelle Yeoh to, to come back and appear. So she's kind of like the, you know, Anya 2.0 in terms of wanting to use her again and sort of being very well respected. She could hold a spin-off. I like your anal- your your reference there saying that kind of like she's her own character. Um, Is she? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the thing, I, I, I don't necessarily agree wholeheartedly on, on the chemistry. I'm not saying there's no chemistry. There is definitely chemistry, but I don't think it's it's brilliant. Um, this is the, girl, the guy that said Dalton had the best chemistry with his bunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing that kind of gripes me about it is that Michelle Yeoh is not the best actress, and she she can she definitely holds her own in a stunt. She does her own stunts, and she's brilliant in action scenes. And I I mean, look, I I don't know whether it comes down to just kind of um, her accent or something with it, but there's just something that that just throws me off with it, which is kind of why I personally am I, I I'm not disliking Michelle Yeoh or, Are you or a the character. Fan of Christmas Joe. <laughs> we'll get to world of um <laughs> but yeah i don't know it's just something there but overall she she's great i mean i think it's it's kind of interesting like we we get to quantum of solace and you know that's the film where bond doesn't sleep with the main girl and yeah i realize we'll count this as a as a you know a conch, a conch whatever at the end with human but you never kind of i feel get 
a whole lot of vibes throughout this film. It's kind of like in For Your Eyes Only with Mustacha. Like, you don't really get a vibe that these two should be having sex until the final scene of the movie. Um, and it's kind of more like she's his partner throughout this film before she becomes his partner. Um, but, you know, she's she's a decent Bond girl. To me, personally, a middle-of-the-road Bond girl. Um well, first of all, as far as her acting goes, like I, I will agree with you in one way. I don't think it's it's partly that she does not have the most well developed character. Like none of the characters are that well developed. Uh, it's a pretty standard character. On top of that, this was her first English language role. So how much English she knew going into this, I'm not sure of. But she was a huge star uh, in Hong Kong films prior to this, and I'm a big fan of like Hong Kong martial arts movies and. Some of her best movies were made before she was even in Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, there's a really good one called Tai Chi Master that she was in. And obviously since then, she went on to do Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. If you do watch her do those Hong Kong films, she's an incredible actress, especially in Crouching Tiger, if anybody's seen that. Uh, but I would assume it's either just not enough to do with the character or that she was still learning English at the time. But I think still think she does a great job. I've been the biggest critic of the whole Bond equals because I'll say it again, if you have a true equal to Bond, you're actually just taking away from Bond and you're taking away from that equal. I mean, it's if you had – people seem to treat it differently because it's a Bond girl. They're like, well, it's a Bond girl that's an equal. Well, great, but if it was a Bond ally that was an equal and they're sharing that amount of screen time, neither of them really are being profiled enough. But this is one case where it works. For one thing, they're not really together for that much in this. This isn't like Anya where – right like 30 minutes in the movie they're partnered up it's not like jinx where she's so crammed down our throats they had to put her into every scene even if she didn't belong they're very sparing with how they use Waylon. and my only complaint is that they don't play up enough on the whole you know communist versus the decadent western power or whatever i really like that line that they have coming up later on and we don't see enough of that in here i would have liked that to have been played up a little bit more Overall, I, I think that she is definitely, like uh, you said, she is well-regarded. It's probably not for any other reason than just she's something different. Whereas, like you said, Noah, Jinx is just an exact duplicate of Bond. Anya is just an exact duplicate of Bond. Anya worked in a way because it had never been done before. Mustacha slash Melina, I don't think she really did work, uh, mostly for acting reasons. Pam Bouvier definitely did not work. This is the one time where it works because she does different things in the action scenes. So on an action level, she's not stealing from what James Bond's uh, role is in this. And even in terms of story, she has a completely different objective. So uh, I think she really does work. She works better than most of the. She's definitely not as memorable as you know some of the other Bond girls that uh, we see, but. I think that she stands out above the others. So um, I- I'm definitely a fan of hers. I just don't think that she's necessarily like the classic that everybody's made her out to be. But I'm a huge Michelle Yeoh fan regardless. After this, let's just get into You guys mentioned the, the stunt, which I think is probably the best single stunt in the movie, the banner drop. Uh, way better than uh, the, the halo jump. But uh, following this, we have what's my favorite action scene. Now, I was... I'm not down on the whole remote control car sequence. I just think that in comparison to the bike chase, I think the bike chase is far superior. I think it did everything what the tank chase did, just with a little bit more subtlety. And there was a lot more going on. I mean, they're filming in a very cramped street, not necessarily as high action, 
but such a great scene. And again, it's just, this is where, although they didn't necessarily have that much chemistry, Pierce and Michelle, yo, the whole, you know, sitting on his lap and sitting behind him, their arms twisted around, like it just added a quirk to this car chase and they played it really well. That really elevates this and makes it more memorable. Um, I think this entire sequence is great. And again, when they do have gags in here, like when they drop through the roof and you see the woman just looking there, you're not even sure what's going on. And then she just has a smile on her face. And she basically goes back to having sex right after a motorcycle was dropped into her apartment. With, the, with a, a little nipple shot. Like that. Was there a nipple shot? Only you would notice. I rewound it and paused that. it. There's nipple. <laughs> well, we, we know you would. <laughs> we didn't look so we because we run. knew we could rely on you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but like the little quirks like that in this, they they don't come across as being too goofy. I think that's where I said this has a little bit of subtlety. And of course, I love that final you know moment where the motorcycle goes right underneath the helicopter blades. Which, if we want, I don't think we want to call it a plot hole. But why they would ever try doing that with a helicopter when you have clotheslines everywhere, you've got like walls and poles everywhere. It wouldn't make any sense for them to try that, but. Great, spectacular uh, end to the action scene. Following that, we have the shower scene, which again, like there are little moments where they do have chemistry. I like the the very subtle flirtation they have, and uh, my favorite Pierce line uh, of at least this movie, and maybe one of my favorites of the entire series, is where you know uh, there's like it, it, he says, "You're pretty good with that hook." She goes, "Yeah, it comes from growing up in a rough neighborhood." So you're pretty good with that bike. He goes, that comes from not growing up at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always so loved like the immaturity of Bond. Although that's definitely a Roger Moore line. Not that Pierce doesn't pull it off, though. Yeah, well, I think Pierce pulls it off better than some of the Pierce lines that he has. But um, he follows her after she handcuffs him. You know, we have a little bit of wet T-shirt there. Ben, did you notice any nipples? No nipple. No nipple that time, Colin. Oh, no nipple. There we go. Uh, <laughs> if you're following on the nipple count, we're at one. <laughs> And uh, we basically get the the Weylin Q Lab, uh, where there's lots <laughs> of different gadgets. And this again is just as fun as the Q scene earlier on. The fact that Bond's completely out of the loop, that he freaks out a little bit. Like I always love that Pierce brings a little bit of a freak out and a spaz element to Bond every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> what was the gadget he was using? Where he's like, yeah, what, what the fan. No, no, it was the the, 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 the yes. no, it was the um the dragon with the fire. Yeah, that's right. The fight. Yeah. <laughs> well, you should have laughed. Experience afterwards. with dragons. Uh, and of course, blame I me. was hoping. I was hoping at least part of his shirt, at least, would catch on fire in that scene. <laughs> Colin's hoping he burns to death. <laughs> but again, like the the great thing about Pierce is that he has this humility with Bond, where he's not afraid to have Bond look a little bit stupid sometimes. Where it's like, yeah, you know, you do this, I'll send the message, and he looks at the keyboard. And he's like, hmm. Uh, better off you send the message. The cunning linguist can't read Cantonese. I don't know what's going on there. And, uh, yeah, we basically find out the entire thing is going on, and uh, it sets up the rest of the plot. Uh, we'll stop it there just before we get to everything with the stealth boat. But this is my favorite section of the movie. I mean, we could include everything in Vietnam here. The bike chase is just incredible. And I love this Waylon's cue scene here. It's just There's so many great gadgets going on. The watch and... The fan, the dragon, as I said, pierce the spaz. It's just awesome. Yeah, the entire half, second half of this film is pretty much just an extended action sequence. But all the action sequences are good, so it doesn't really matter. Um, 
Yeah, I love the banner stuff with Jonathan Price's massive face on there, taking up the entire half of a skyscraper. Like, that's such a thing that Elliot Carver would have made up. Um, and just them ripping down is great. Uh, I love the motorbike chase too because I was talking about motorbikes so much in Never Say Never Again, saying how great motorbikes are in Bond and that they need to use them more rather than like the three times they've done it or not or whatever. So it works so well. And um, is this the first Eon one to feature a motorbike I extensively? Think so, yes. Yeah, so they always try and mix it up. That each film they've got try to get a new different type of vehicle chase, and it blows my mind. It's taken this long to get to motorbikes, um, and it's a great scene through the village with Waylin uh, stuck there as well. Um, so easily a highlight of the film. It's great, and the helicopter stuff's great, even though the obvious stunt d- dummies in the helicopter oh, as it blows up. That Ben pointed out when we watched it is just hilarious. Um, so yeah, this is really a good film for the vehicle battles and the vehicle chases between the car and this. Um, so that's good. And then uh, the shower scene is is good. That that is probably one of the key Waylin bomb moments. I, I like that. Some great interactions there that you already covered, Colin. And then the Waylin cue, and I love. More fisty cuff fights just to uh, top it off after some of the greatest uh, bike stuff we've seen. So one big extended action sequence, but it works so well. And what makes this film excel is that the action sequences are different. It's not all just Bond, shoot them up. Like they mix it up. So motorbike is easily one of my favorite parts of the film. And Bond and Waylon or Pierce and Michelle Yeoh are both great. Um. Do you want to mention anything on the Q, uh, Michelle? It was good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed it. All right. Um, Just wanted to check there that you, you know. Um, Interesting trivia bit uh, on the the motorcycle uh, bit, Colin, you mentioned in regards to kind of them fighting over the driving. Um, Roger, the the director, Roger, 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 Roger (laughs) Ranger. What's your names again? The director of this film, Roger. Roger Spottiswood uh, apparently took both Pierce Brosnan and Michelle Yeoh aside without the others knowing and told them each not to let the other get into the driver's seat. So that during that scene, when they're fighting over the driver's seat, that was in part, both of them, you know, as actors, like, not, you know, trying to get the other one in the seat. Sneaky, so sneaky Roger. <laughs> Bloody Roger. <laughs> um, I think it works fantastically. Yeah, this chase sequence is brilliantly. It was, it was Goldeneye or Thunderbolt, a uh, Goldfinger or Thunderball, wasn't it? We had the the motorbike a brief chase, and then was it uh, Spy Who Loved Me? We also had a motorbike in there, but in terms of kind of... Well, Fiona Volpe had a motorbike. But... Yeah, extended motorbike <laughs> sequence. Um, yeah, it's it's fantastic. The the jump over the helicopter, um, you know, going through the roof with Nipple Lady, uh, the fireworks. Um, I know we talked in From Russia with Love with the helicopter. I think I mentioned, you know, why doesn't the helicopter just, you know, mow on down with his blades and try and chop Bond up? And you're both like, oh, you couldn't do that. That wouldn't work. Well, they tried to do it in this movie. So, um, and did it work? Yeah. How did that turn out for him? Well, half those people on the street of bloody Saigon are probably in bits and pieces all over. So, you know, 
there. Sample was there with his camera. Um, and yeah, shower scene, nothing really to add there. I, I kind of question why they need to have a shower. Like, we don't see Bond having showers in other post chase sequences. Like, I don't know, but good on them. They needed to. And he just got out of the bath when he was dodging the helicopter explosion. <laughs> Okay. Standard. Um. And yeah, the the whole the sequence in the sort of the um uh, Hong Kong uh, sorry Vietnam Q lab, um you know the fight sequence with uh, Wei Lin and all the guys coming in there and I love the yeah, the interactions. I love the bit when you've got that guy all of a sudden wakes up and Bond's just like on your left and she's just like boom with that like billow thing that like shoots a thing out and kills him and yeah the, the you mentioned it colin obviously with the, the dragon and bond sort of you know being a real ditzy klutzy guy spaz i think that was the word you said um i love the bit with the fan and you know he drops the always been a fan of chinese technology and uh bond becomes a thief and steals a watch uh, and then mentions the uh the new walter i'm gonna get q to get me one of these um yeah it's, it's great i love it and um that's all I will add. We're basically at the climax now. There's a very brief scene, which there's nothing really noteworthy to mention other than the line about, you know, communists don't know how to, or they say communists don't know how to f- have fun between Bond and Waylon as they're sailing toward the stealth boat. And then we're back to the stealth boat. This time, Carver and Stamper are on board. Um, there's a couple little moments with M, uh, you know, going back and forth again because we're right at the invasion. This is something I think they could have done a little bit better because I've at this point forgotten about the fact that there's this timeline before, you know, the the two countries go to war. But when they do play up on it here, I think it works really well. Uh, The stealth boat, the the sneaking onto it, I I love, you know, Waylon obviously gets dragged in there, but I love that Bond uses this dead body trick where he he holds out the dead body and then they fake it's him. Uh, Stamper wasn't filming it though, so he was a little bit off this game. His uh, sequel is going to really tank because he doesn't have the proper footage. And, uh, yeah, we find out again that this is all about getting broadcasting rights in China. Because killing (laughs) thousands of people and putting your own life at stake and killing your wife, that's all worth it just for broadcasting rights in one country. Mm, Well, it's the only one. The only one he doesn't have. Yeah, so really it's just an ego thing for him. It's like Pokemon, got to catch them all. This is like this is like his John Tenney dream. Like it was always his dream to have broadcasting <laughs> rights in China, so he won't stop until he has it. And uh, yeah, this is basically just a repeat of the Golden Eye sequence, where the girl is captured and Bond sets a couple of traps, and then he faces the villains. Uh, there's uh, escape scenes. This time we have you know Waylon killing. We're we're all completely flustered at the kill count in this, but I'm just gonna say we would have a much easier time doing a kill count for Waylon, despite the fact she kills twice as many people because she gets the more vicious kills in this and the more obvious kills. And the one thing I really liked is that she's killing person after person after person just silently and cold. And then she shoots apart an, electro- an electronic panel and goes, yeah! Oh, <laughs> God, I hate that. Woo! Why does she give out her battle cry when shooting an electrical panel? I don't know. Yeah! Um, (laughs) But I will say, the most cringeworthy moment of this entire movie, and this is why I always hated Carver, is the moment where he does the fake kung fu moves. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
And it's not something that I can picture Stromberg doing. Although I will say, Stromberg's instantly a top ten villain if he does. <laughs> I want to see that film. But it's like it just makes him so stupid. It's just embarrassing to watch. Um, yeah, and then we have like the the final showdowns between Carver and Stamper. Uh, pretty vicious death for Carver. Like I'm going to put that up is probably the most brutal death of any of the Brosnan films. Yeah, a lot uh, of guts. <laughs> we, how many times could we loop that line in there? Someone uh, needs to re-edit it. They'll pre-edit the these days. No, <laughs> uh, but then we have Stamper, the fight with Stamper, which I think is a good one. Again, it's not great. It's kind of made interesting because you have this drill thing and you know his foot being nailed to the floor or whatever. Uh, final moment with uh, Bond sucking face with Waylon underwater so they could survive. She was thought he thought uh, she was probably, dead. Necro. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Again, <laughs> where are the cameras here? Like, there are people dying everywhere, and Stamper's only worried about avenging Kaufman's death. Stamper like, he needs be making... to invest in some Tiger Tanaka uh, invisible camera. <laughs> the, the floating Louis Gilbert camera would come in handy here. I just love that she's always... been underwater for over a minute, and he goes down. The first thing he wants to do is get it on with her. Yeah. <laughs> Let me breathe. let's. <laughs> Let's talk about Stamper here. I mean, he could make a killing on the Chinese video market if he had had just a few cameras there. That, that's Forget the plot. That's why they want media rights in China. It's so that bloody Stamper yeah. can hook up with the snuff market. Yeah, Stamper's snuff, the real villain. Snuff porn is very big in Hong Kong. They just uh, need the rights and they're fine. <laughs> but, like, we're basically covering... We usually do this where we'll cover the majority of the climax, but then we'll leave the the villain fights or the final scene for different ones. But maybe this is, a, again, it's kind of a criticism, but not really a criticism. This is all just so standard and it's all just very brief. I mean, the fight scenes are very brief that this can all be grouped in together. I really don't think this is the strongest climax. Uh, I'm going to be interested to see when we get to the die another day climax, if I'm even maybe a little bit higher on the die, die another day climax in this one because I think that at least had time stamp know, remember that Ben Waterworth loop that back in in the <laughs> die another day episode well there's at least one character that was fun to watch in that and it was not Halle Berry and it was not <laughs> Gustav Graves and it may not even be Pierce Brosnan but yeah it's just everything here is again it's it's fun it's adequate it's a little bit lazy uh, but I mean let's again remember this was a very rushed movie uh, they didn't even have the script finished by the time they started filming. So you can give some grace to this for that. But uh, overall, it's it's still a decent climax. This is definitely not the worst climax we've ever seen in a Bond movie. Um, I think it's probably stronger than the Living Daylight's climax. And uh, you know, the fight scene with Stamper could have been a little bit longer. I think that's my only complaint. But one is that, again, this is not the fighter with Carver. This is classic Bond where Stromberg's taken out before Jaws. Uh, you know, having the henchman at the end elevates the henchman in a way it makes the villain more interesting because it is just this sick, sadistic guy and it's not this guy who needs to fight, which will be one of my complaints when we get to World is Not Enough. Uh, yeah, there's a lot going on here, but there's almost not a huge amount to talk about. Um, I do like the set of the stealth boat. That's pretty cool. Um, it's not quite Spy Love Me, Lewis Gilbert sets here, but um, it's pretty cool. I like how Carver's standing there throughout most of it, just uh, in that area, and there's um, kind of a bit of a cold war where Bond's there and they're not killing each other for a bit. 
Uh, Waylin does kick ass here, as you mentioned. She's awesome. I don't mind though. Yeah, because she <sighs> she really does kick ass here. So give her at least something. Um, I like the <laughs> the kung fu karate bit. Oh, it's funny. <laughs> Because he is an over-the-top campy villain, so why not get him do, doing that? Um, I think it works with his character. We didn't have him doing a cheesy British accent to make fun of Bond or... Oh, I don't well, know. Hello, I'm James Bond. Well, he's got a British accent, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so, oh, yeah. does he? Maybe that's his thing the whole movie, and then he starts going like, Oh, hey, I'm Canadian. I'm actually... <laughs> I was just mocking you. Sorry. We don't Sorry. have him doing like a, a striptease wearing Paris Carver's lingerie to mock her. <laughs> that would have been epic. John Tenney's other dream. Um. <laughs> <laughs> my dream is to have Jonathan Price in my wife's laundry. <laughs> Still hasn't been fulfilled. The full Monty yet. came out that year, didn't it? So that's probably, you know. Yeah. <laughs> These were really getting in on the two, 1997 blockbusters. <laughs> um, yeah, Carver's death is weird because why didn't he just move? Because he had plenty of time to move out of the way. Yeah, I think I heard someone saying something there in the background very quietly, but... Um, that Bond is stronger and he had a lot of guts. Uh, yeah, but Bond moves out of the way and then Carver's just like, ah! as you get gutted up. Like, it's the Austin weird. Powers steamroll scene. Yeah, that he just doesn't move. Ah! Um, but move, I really lo- like ah! that they went back to that method of having the main villain killed first because Carver is not a fighter. He is the one who gets Stamper to do his stuff. Um, for him, so it works that that they go back to that of having the henchman afterwards. Um, we didn't mention Gupta too much. He shit henchman. Um, yeah, d- <laughs> he had Nicoder, He got shot. There we go. With, uh, yeah. I mentioned Gupta. Um, the opening sequence. I just love her. It's like, um, well, you have to do this because I'll kill him because he's the only one who knows how to do it. And then he's like, Gupta, have you done it? And Gupta's like, Yeah. So he just gets shot. is responsible for his own death, for his idiotic uh, responses. But um, I love the battle between Bond and Stamper. They could have done something a bit better, but it's still epic, like the two brutes going head-to-head at the end after everyone else has lost. So it's just a cool fight. And they had that big grenade-type thing. Um, again, I think they could have probably done better, like done like an Alec type thing, not drop Stamper from really far, but just made it a bit more epic. But it's still cool that they're going head to head after Elliot's been killed and pretty much Stamper's on a suicide mission uh, there. It's going to be his final film um, to, end all, or, uh, to end all snuff films. But it, it's a cool fight. And as I mentioned, Bond, he could have killed Waylin here by not pulling her out of the water after she's been trapped there for two minutes. Instead, he's just making out with her. Like, that could have been the end of Waylin there. So that was um close call. And then the end, it's such a rushed ending. It's like Bond and Waylin get out and they're making out. The end. Like, it's not even like MI6 show up and make a funny line or something like that. It's just really rushed, but... 
Overall, like the pre-title secrets, I don't love the climax, but we've seen worse ones, so it's decent. There's a lot of cool action in here. Bit anticlimactic, but still pretty cool. Mentioning the full Monty, actually, I believe that's why Robert Carlyle was cast as Renard in the next film, was based purely on his um, stripping in that joke fell flat. Never mind. Um, so I was we about have... to say, oh, really? <laughs> it was a joke about Trivia on IMDb. Um, yeah, uh, this whole... I mean, the set is great. Uh, the stealth boat, fantastic. Um, it, similar, like, Tasmanian reference. It looks very similar to the catamarans that the, our company Incat makes in this in this beautiful state, one of our biggest exporters. Um, I like kind of... We sort of didn't mention the sort of chopping and changing between M and... Um, you know, going, watching what's going on there. Um, that's okay. Um, I like the fact that when, uh, we think that Bond is dead and, you know, uh, Carver's celebrating it and then, uh, we see he's alive and then he's like, so much for German efficiency, like just shitting all over his poor old henchman who in about two or three scenes is going to be shoving Bond around going, for Carver, for Kaufman. Like, he's really avenging their deaths. Um, I I cringe so badly at the Hah! that um, Waylene oh. does. She does it actually, I think, um, one time briefly just before with one of the guards that she shoots and then she does it when destroying the, the, the thing. But I'm with Noah. I love the Carver. Pathetic. Oh. Like, I love it. It's fantastic. Um... Yeah, I don't have a whole lot else to add. I'm with Noah. Like, why doesn't he just duck? Um, Actually, I guess my biggest question is, why is Carver on the boat? Like, why isn't this, like, in the opening, you know, yeah. bit after the song? Why isn't he just back in Hamburg? Like, does he need to be on the boat? Like, he's about to start World War Three. Like, there could be a little bit of friendly fire in this. Yes. Um, I like the the whole sort of cross between the other naval ship when they're like, we're going to do it the old-fashioned way, and they're, like, blowing the shit out of this. And I, I do like the whole sort of bit between the Chinese and the British, like they're going to shoot each other and there's going to be the whole war thing. I think that's great. Um, yeah, the the fight uh, between Bond and, and Stamper, we die together, Mr. Bond. Like, it's great and kind of... We saw elements, as I said before, about where they wanted to use that he doesn't feel pain sort of thing. He's getting stabbed left, right, and center. He's got this giant thing stamping on his stampering feet and doesn't really feel any of the pain. Colin would have been loving the bit where the flames are like burning him just before he blows up. Um, the, the only bit really that I will add is that kind of again, 1997 Titanic, when the boats are like going like, Commander Bond, General Lin, or Ad, whatever it is, um, you know, we just, we need them to dub it back over going, is there anybody alive out there? Is there anybody alive out there? And we've got Rose on a thing, like with a whistle. Come back, come back. Um, maybe someone can edit that for us. But um, overall, it's a it's a decent end scene. Um, out of the Brosnans, um, probably again number four out of them in terms of my favourite climax. So um, yeah, again. otherwise known as last. <laughs> but again, still puts it a lot of a lot of other Bond films in terms of the climaxes. Um, so that's the end of Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, Tomorrow, Tomorrow Never eventually Lies. did die. That's why it's the end. And <laughs> um, I guess, yeah, the only other thing we didn't mention was Gupta. And uh, let's oh, just leave it that way. <laughs> that's not. Um, that was a John Tenney dream we'll not get to it. mention Gupta. <laughs> so what happened to the secretary then? 
Oh, what, she's the like... PR PR lady. Did she? Did PR lady end up running tomorrow after his? <laughs> yes, <laughs> you were fired. Oh, he never filed the paperwork. I'm in charge. Well, tomorrow probably didn't die. Carver died, but you'd have to imagine the paper kept running. Well, probably not, seeing as they tried to start World War Three. <laughs> <laughs> It's a little well. Any any news is bad news is good news. Was that the line or? Yeah, uh, something like that. We didn't mention the line at the end. Uh, you forgot the first rule of what is it? <laughs> Give the people mass what media. they want. Give the is that yeah. the first rule of mass media? Really? Um, yeah. Well, they don't really follow that rule, mass media. Yeah, companies, if so. it is the rule, then <laughs> I'm not sure how well they are at following the rule. I want a quiche. Ben, is and our I've never had a quiche from my newspaper. <laughs> as an expert on mass media, Ben, what is the first rule? <laughs> Don't hire Ben Waterworth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, he's out of double R seven now. <laughs> I just want Carver's final words to be: No, it's not. <laughs> you didn't go to journalism <laughs> school. <laughs> you don't have a degree. <laughs> That's a weird line because it's just not true. John Tenney dreamt of this. <laughs> <laughs> I have a degree. <laughs> Let's wrap this up with, um, let's start it off with what's going to be the most painful uh, edition of this we've ever had. Mr. Mr. Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. Kiss, Bang, Bang. Travis? (laughs) That's always painful. Uh, let's, Let's do the easy Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bangs here. So, Bond, James Bond's one. Yep. Uh, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. Yes, ben, just what? say yes. <laughs> Sorry, I was looking at my wrong notes. Yes, yes, that's correct. Okay, uh, Martinis won as ordered by Paris Carver. Uh, Girls yes. Gone Wild. Yep. Yes. Okay. Uh, kiss, kiss. We have brushing up on some Danish. We have Paris, and we have Waylin. If we include her, I guess yep. we have to include her, don't we? Well, well yeah, get we have to include yeah. other ones. <laughs> Well, like, yeah, yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, she's no Paris Carver. She's... <laughs> Anyways, uh, go. I'm going to be perfectly honest. The Bang Bang Count, my notes are all over the place on this because when I watched it, I rewound several of these scenes and still couldn't figure out what was going on. So I made a goal that I would mark the scenes where I couldn't figure out the kills and go back later on because I just had random numbers in there. I had I did a Ben. I'm like I'm gonna say 15 in the scene. I'm gonna say a 12. <laughs> so I have like a random number of like 33, which is probably nowhere near it. Uh, I'm gonna be perfectly honest and say I do I did not even have time to go back and rewatch this. Ben, I think you probably came the closest as far as researching this over and oh, over again. You holding your luck, Ben? Do you remember mate? the first rule of mass media, Colin? <laughs> do not hire Ben Waterworth to do your job. <laughs> Go, uh, go to well, no one Colin, next you, time. Anybody you joked about anything. 33. I also have, well, not 33, but I've got 30. Ooh. Okay, we're getting somewhere. Holy shit, I'm closer than I thought. Um, I've got 31. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Jeez, I was not expecting this at all. And can, I had this... 31, and then I took one off, so... Let's just say this is... I, I will be happy to go with 31, because we trust Ben this time. <laughs> <laughs> You're drunk, mate. <laughs> yeah, when, when did this we come in? I've never trusted well, You did say you had 31 originally, and you took one. Hmm. Well, okay, I just want to say how monumental this is. 
this is what the second time in a row we've agreed. Did we agree on Goldeneye? No, I was like twenty no, about both of you. Sixty-four, <laughs> like fifty I or sixty. <laughs> it might have been License to Kill. That there was a recent one where we all agreed and we were shocked at that. We are as close as we've ever been, and I'm just going to say right off the bat, none of us have any clue what we're talking about. <laughs> Random numbers out here. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, do we have anything to run through here? Or is this just... Well, I'm yeah, happy to cover some mine if, if you well, two don't. Or... Okay. We'll, we'll run through them side by side, so like pre-title. All right, well, pre-title, I got... Uh, what's that? Three, six, eight. I got ten in the pre-titles. <laughs> I had five in the pre-titles. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> I had seven. Um, you had what, Colin? Seven. The right. one that I've written yeah. here, I've written three guards in the... So... The bit where he does the, you know, filthy habit, the killing bit, like, I know where he knocks two people out, but he then throws the grenade basically right next to where they would have been knocked out, and there's one person in a truck. Um, I've got three people with plane gun, um, two in truck, and then obviously the two in the plane. I I didn't count, like, you know, he blows the shit out of, like, 30 things, which would have had people in them, but we don't know how many were in those things that he blew up. Yeah. Let's just go through them all, then we can go back. Um, am I still going, am I? Um, yeah. So, so then we don't have any for a while, so then we go into um, mm-hmm. the the paper bit. Uh, so I got he kills one guard, then he throws one guy, so I've got two in that. Yeah, I've got uh, two there. Then obviously Kaufman... Yep. Um, then in the the Saigon building, just before he jumps out, I've got that he killed four guards coming through the no, door. No, it was three because one got away. But I froze frame it and... Uh, okay, I did well, the same. Right, well, maybe that's... One, one ducks behind the back just as he's okay, shooting okay. Um, four dummies in the chopper I've written. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> rest in peace, dummies. Um, then in the final, uh, bit, I've got, he kills the guard at the door. Then when he's inside, he kills a guy when he's like, sorry, I tuned out for a moment. Then he kills one extra, then another, then two more, then two more at the computer. Then <laughs> Just he kills tell Carver. us the number you've got for this bit. Okay, hang on. So the another, guard, another, the random another. guards, he's got one, two, three, four, six, Eight guards, Carver, and Stamper. So, ten for the final. I've got eleven for that climax, not counting Elliot and Stamper. So, how do you... There was more than eight. Less than, oh, I came up with five. Yeah, I came up with twelve, but that was just, like, uh, a guesstimate. I counted eleven. There was definitely more than eight, that's for sure. Well, you've, like, got more than me in the final. I've got more than you in the pre-titles. And then Elliot and Stamper, yes. But there was more than Stamper? eight. Are we, we all counting Stamper, yes? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. I'm happy to go with 30 then oh. if we take one out in the Saigon bit. Let's just go with 30 then. That's fine, but then I'm a bit... We're going we really with a number that's this? not even agreed on because we've got different... Uh, let's just do 30, but... Um, 30. I think it's a win that we all had 30, 31, and 33. That's a win. Yeah. Which is one less than Goldeneye. So, um... Well, it's probably not because we're all being very vague here, but it's probably about 10 more than Goldeneye. Well, but anyway. IMDb, estimated body count is 197, <laughs> making this the highest death <laughs> well, toll in any Bond film. I'm guessing that's just that overall. Is, let's be honest. 
Most of that is Stamper in his porn films. Yeah, yeah does that is that just Bond or no? Is that that's, I think that's that would be kill count. Yeah. Um, so okay, we're up to two thirty-eight kills, forty-eight. Um, oh, he's going to get to fifty in the next film. Um, Fourteen martinis and twenty Bonds, James Bonds. Cool. Good for him. I know, right? Good, good on him. And how many nipples in the whole series? I've <laughs> uh, lost count. 264. Uh, that's for Ben's rewatch, his private rewatch, <laughs> along with uh, the, whole, the entire filmography of Stamper. Uh. <laughs> What's his first name, Stamper, or is that his first name? Mister. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's funny because I actually did have, like, th- that he was Bambi, Richard. like you mentioned. You have your name here, Bambi and Thumper and Stamper. Like, he was the brother of those. Bambi it's Richard. According to Richard Wikipedia, Stamper. it's Richard Stamper. Richard Stamper? Why? Dick Stamper. Dick Stamper. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why? Was that not mentioned? That's like Strawberry Fields all over again. That should have been in the movie. <laughs> Wow! Wow! <laughs> He's the star of all of his films. Yeah, no. Dick Stamper, Drowning <laughs> Women Four, starring Dick Stamper. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if that's legit because IMDb just has Stamper. Uh, that doesn't. Well, have IMDb first also name. said one thousand people died in this film, so. <laughs> But Wikipedia Dick Stamper. I bet you that's in the novelization. Dick Stamper. <laughs> <laughs> that's a better name than Holly Goodhead. Dick Stamper. <laughs> There's the episode title, folks. It just all connects so well. Snuff film director. <laughs> Dick Stamper. <laughs> Mr. Oh, Dick The many Stamper. dreams of John Tenney. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, Dick Stamper. All right. <laughs> Speaking of dicks, let's get to this guy. <laughs> Box office. And Peter Travers, he is a stupid idiot. But don't read his stuff. Whoa! Peter oh. Travers. John Teddy. <laughs> <laughs> and Dick Stamper. <laughs> Oh, Let's God. be honest, though, before we get into the ranking <laughs> of this, um, Peter Travers did rank <laughs> Dick Stamper Part 4 as the number one of his film series. <laughs> did, yeah, uh, did Peter Travers do a, a Dick Stamper filmography ranking? <laughs> the Adventures of Dick Stamper. <laughs> Dick Stamper does Dallas. Um <laughs> Stamping his sister, Dink Dink Stamper. Stamper. Dick Stamper pussy. Um, Dink, Dick, and Della Stamper. They're all related. (laughs) On a honeymoon. (laughs) Um, All right, Travis first. Let's get the bastard out of the way. I was going to say the C word again, but I've already dropped that once in double seven. We won't revisit that again. Um, I still love the guy that you brought in to defend your point of view has now become, let's get that dick stamper Peter Travers. It'll pay off in two episodes, okay? Um, uh, 21st, he has got it. Uh, Just behind The World Is Odd Enough and just above The Living Daylights, he says... There were no more Ian Fleming novels and titles to plunder, so tomorrow was created for... False, false, false. 
this is his credibility. Sam Parsons, Bronson Bonds tried to stop Jonathan Price's media mogul from starting World War Three. Oh, please. The product placement was egregious. Brosnan sporting a tux by what? Brioni of you Rome. You spell that for us? E G R E G I O S I O U S. That's a big you word, Colin. Journalist. I can't even read Bond He's novels. Learning. I don't know what that means. You're the journalist. You do this for a living. <laughs> I work for this the. Is why the first rule of mass media: mass. don't hire Ben Waterworth. I don't work for like. What the- Anyway, um, he, he is a Brioni of Rome wielding a cell phone by Ericsson. As a 1999 video game, Tomorrow was dissed by Game Revolution as empty and shallow. The tied-out movie that preceded it was considerably worse. Good to see that Peter Travis is a video game aficionado. Um, interesting <laughs> well, note, actually. The product placement, I, I posted in our little chat here, this was apparently the very first movie in history to have its entire budget... Uh, paid for by product placement. A hundred million dollars. This budget was was all paid for by product placement. There you go. Um, Rolling Stone box office um, for this film, which is called Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, $125,304,276, seventh um, overall. Did become the number one James Bond film in the history of James Bond at the time of release, knocking off Goldeneye. Um, if you... Are, and the seventh now was sixth until Spectre, Spectre. At time of recording, Spectre is in fifth. Um, and in terms of adjusted... It comes in at seventh again, $224,439,200, just below Die Another Day, just ahead of From Russia with Love. And of course, yeah, we've, we've joked about it a lot this episode, but obviously had huge competition with what was the biggest movie in the history of movies until uh, Avatar came out, Titanic. So it still did... Fair Snow Dogs did pretty decent, let's be honest, for a movie that was up against the biggest film in history. So, yeah. yeah and that, that's important to note because even going into this, like, there were not that high expectations of Titanic. In fact, most people, the expectations were they wanted to see how badly it would bomb because of how expensive it was. But this is known as being like, oh, it's the Bond movie that didn't open at number one because it was behind Titanic. If you look at the opening weekends... Titanic made only three million more than Tomorrow Never Dies. I mean, these movies were neck and neck, and hmm. it held up well week after week. So, I mean, of course, it, it wouldn't go on to become the biggest film in history, but it definitely wasn't a loser. Well, Titanic was known, of course, as a film that uh, holds all these records for just the extended stay and the fact that it's like <laughs> third week was bigger than its second week. It just kept building and building and building. Like, and yeah, it's good to note about the opening weekend. Can, but can we um, just say Peter Travers is a dick stamper. <laughs> I was going to say that his review, for those who actually know what the word means, was very egregious. But <laughs> let's go with the egregious. <laughs> He's a very egregious dick stamper. <laughs> Episode title. This again. is also again just uh, looking at the running time. This is probably the last time that a Bond movie will clock in under two hours, too, and it's probably the first uh, one in a long time too. Well. Quantum. You're forgetting the oh, yeah, quantum. Dick Stamper yeah. film, Quantum Assault. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, overall, this was even short for the time. Most of, We're at the point where Bonds are like two hours and ten minutes, even through the Roger Moore era. So, um, shorter movie, but adequate. Uh, <laughs> let's let's stop using the word adequate. Let's move on to egregious. Uh, let's get to our uh, 
debated segment for the It's the hole, the hole with the classic scenes. Hall of Fame. It's yep. so... um, we've had a couple of mentions. It's funny because I feel there are better films out there that we're going to rank higher on our rankings that we had a hard time coming up with Hall of Fame. But I feel like there are several very clear choices for a Hall of Fame in this, which but is strange considering the movie. Fantastic, nothing fantastic, but I mean, in comparison to some of the Hall of Fame in the 80s, uh, even in some of the ones in the 70s, there are some good choices in this. Um, you know, we mentioned the bike chase, the remote control car scene, Kaufman scene definitely could be included in there. Uh, you know, Paris and Bond at the, I don't know if it would be that high, but Paris and Bond at the, the, the launch party, the, the whaling Q lab. I mean, there's a lot of really good scenes in here that we could use. Um, Motorbike guys. I think your I first three that you just said, I think the three, the first three that you just said are the three that we should include. Kaufman, the remote control car, and the motorbike. Yep, that would I'm be my three. Skeptical on Kaufman. It's my favorite oh, scene of the I, film. I think that's that iconic, though. People seem to forget Kaufman. I think it's shown but, a lot. Us putting, and us putting it in the Hall of Fame, they won't forget. 25 likes out there will be listening <laughs> to this saying, I'm going to start talking about Kaufman. Well, what I would you put above care. it then, Noah? Right. What, what would um, you put ahead of it? I would put Kaufman scene, shut up, let's move on. Okay, there we go. We're in agreement. So, 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 just to clarify, we have the. I would put the party up, but whatever. Kaufman, what would we call it? Kaufman interrogation. Yeah, oh, Kaufman's good, interrogation. Good big word there, Ben. Good job. <laughs> it's Kaufman's not a, a egregious gre- interrogation. Egregious. Um, <laughs> Kaufman's egregious interrogation. The remote control car chase in car park, and motorcycle chase. Okay. Cool. Is that which is that leaves where... only? Yes, yeah, sorry. sorry shut up, Ben. Yeah. Huh? What? <laughs> I'll shut up. What? Huh? Okay. Hello, shut Whisper. up. Um, I'll shut up too if you want. Everybody, shut up. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> let's move on yeah. to our final segment where we do something called. <laughs> Rankings, baby. Rankings. Oh, rank- we, are, we are ranking the best snuff moments of Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> That's actually quite the a best, few of them. The best John Tenney dreams. <laughs> There's a top ten in there somewhere. All right. So, I, I haven't put that much thought into this. Uh, and it's mostly because... This is kind of one of those ones that I'm very split on. I'm not sure if it's a great movie. I'm not sure if it is lazy. Um, Parts of this really work, but parts of it don't. It's so hard because the ones that I'm looking to rank it around, I feel succeeded much better in having like those memorable moments. And we just talked about three great Hall of Fame scenes, but I feel like the memorable moments in these others were stronger, but overall, there's nothing really wrong with this one, whereas there's problems with a lot of the other mid-ones. My top rankings are not being touched. Um, I'm saying I'm debating right now between this and Octopussy, which I think would put it... Octopussy's my number nine right now. And uh, if Live and Let Die is just below that, I think 
as much as I've definitely come to appreciate Live and Let Die, there are still issues with that that there's definitely moments where you want to fast forward through just to get to the better moments, whereas at least this doesn't have those. I'm probably going to put it right between the two. So I'm going to put it in between Octopussy and Live and Let Die, which will put it at number 10 right now out of 17 for me. 18. Out of 18. <laughs> Wait. Yes, out of 18. There we go. 19 if we count. Never say never. Again. Which we don't. So that's a dick stamp. We said we never say it. Never say never yeah, again. Never say, no, never, say, uh... never, never say never again. Didn't we say that about die another day? Um, so, yeah, to summarize my thoughts on Tomorrow Never Dies, it seems like we weren't overly positive about it. Like, we weren't negative, but we didn't really talk it up too much. But I do really enjoy it, and it's kind of non-stop great action sequences with a pretty decent main villain, a pretty decent henchman. Uh, Kaufman's great, pretty decent Bond girl, pretty decent... Could have been slightly better. Secondary girl, some great MI6 moments. A silly plot, but it's over the top and it's Bondian. This film screams Bondy, Bondy. Uh, I don't know where I'm going there. Bondy, Bondy. Um, but <laughs> it just, it, this is a James Bond film. It's the epitome of James Bond film. It's nothing groundbreaking in the series, but it doesn't let the series down. It's got the action, the girls, the gadgets, the puns, some which are bad, some which are quite good, um, the humour and everything. So it's a good standard Bond film. It's funny you say that you were debating around Octopussy because I'm also debating wherever I should put it above or below Octopussy. Um, and I've always kind of viewed Tomorrow Never Dies, Octopussy and For Your Eyes Only as those three kind of middle-of-the-road type Bond films that have a lot of Bondy in them, Bondy Bondy in them, but they're just kind of, there's things that don't put them into the top 10. Again, for sure, my top, like, 10 is not being in touch, or my top 8 or whatever. Um, but ultimately, it is an enjoyable one, one I can always pop in, don't need to think about, and can enjoy it. So, for me, I'm going to put Tomorrow Never Dies in 11th place. Uh, so, just above Octopussy, which is at 12th, and just below Man with the Golden Gun, and just missing out on my top ten, because I do actually really enjoy this film. If you had have come to me before we started doing this show and told me to rank my Bond films, I would have told you my top four would have been made of Pierce Brosnan films. Um, (laughs) It's not going to be the case this time around. Um, Look, we've covered everything, I think, in terms of what you two have just said about this film. It's a stock standard. It's a formulaic James Bond film. It gets you from A to B. You can pop it in. You can enjoy it. I love the villain, uh, the henchman, you know, Wei Lin. You know, she's okay. Um, you know, Paris Carver, she's she's a great sort of secondary girl. Um, you know, uh, PR lady is uh, up there in the Ben <laughs> Waterworth random hardly any screen time Hall of Fame. Um, Named after her father. It's got some great moments, and you know, I I easily rank this ahead of a lot of films, and I'll tell you how many I rank it ahead of. I mean, I I was tossing and turning about where I would put this. Um, it is my least favorite of the Bron- the Brosnan films, even though I still love the shit out of this film. And I'm kind of tossing and turning in the position, similar to what I was doing with the Living Daylights, sort of around the Goldfinger area. 
Um, Living Daylights, I've got in sixth at the moment. Goldfinger, I've got in seventh at the moment. And just like the Living Daylights, what wins is for me over Goldfinger is the song. So I'm going to put it at number seven. (laughs) And uh, just behind the Living Daylights and just ahead of Goldfinger. um, It's, I mean, look, I think... It's kind of like, as you were saying, Noah, about everything about this, that it is a James Bond film. I mean, that's what Goldfinger to me is as well. But um, for the Brosnan element and the song element, I will put this at number seven. So you two are really shitting yourselves where I'm going to put Die Another Day if this is my least favourite Pierce Brosnan film. <laughs> let's, let's just clear something up here. The deciding factor <laughs> in this being a stronger film than Goldfinger is the strength of Cheryl Crow's title song over Shirley Bassey's? <laughs> yep. <laughs> ben, like his dad before him, is an idiot. <laughs> the first rule of mass media. <laughs> but I think the real question here is, how does this rank against all of the Roger Moore films? Uh, well, I have two Roger Moore films ahead of it. Ben, so... I was just making a Roger... Joke. Oh, I don't actually want to know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you could tell me if you want. I did. There's two ahead of it. All right. Bye-bye, Roger. And we're going to be moving on to The World Is Not Enough. So Yay. before we uh, end this episode, let's just do a really quick preview of our thoughts on The World Is Not Enough. And uh, I, I have to say, we've, we've talked about the guilty pleasures. Noah, you had your Diamonds Are Forever. Ben, you had a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> 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 but um, everybody's talking about, you guys have said how my rankings are kind of like, you know, more rational or whatever. I almost feel left out, but... I think if I have any, The World Is Not Enough is going to be mine. And it's one that I don't understand. I'm going to be interested because I know, Noah, you're not really a fan of this. I'm going to be interested to hear that side of the conversation because every complaint I ever hear about The World Is Not Enough comes down to one thing, and that's Denise Richards' Christmas Jones. And yeah, she's terrible in this, as is most Bond movies have at least one terrible character in them. There's a reason we didn't talk about Gupta in this, but... If you take her out of it, and she's only really a small part, she I would argue she's the secondary Bond girl in this, the movie is a blast, and it definitely takes itself a little bit more seriously than GoldenEye and Tomorrow Never Dies. It's a little bit less campy, uh, although there are moments in there. Obviously, Renard is a villain, very campy, and a fantastic campy villain. This entire movie, for me, is made by the fact that I think the action scenes are the strongest we're going to get in uh, the Brosnan films, and I think the villains, because we really do have an argument this time. And do we have henchmen and a lead villain, or do we have a henchwoman and a lead villain? Uh, the villains really sell this. And I, I'm going to be interested to see if there are any negative comments made about either Electric King or Renard in this, because they are everything in this movie. And I love this movie to death just because of them alone. And on top of that, there's so much other good stuff in there. So. If I'm going to have a guilty pleasure, this is going to be it for me. I love The World's Not Enough. Yeah, I don't. Um, (laughs) I feel like I shouldn't show up next film with you two. Um, This is the first one that I remember coming out in the cinemas and being the latest new James Bond film. And I saw it a lot back in the day just because it was on television, because it was the latest film 
for three years. Um, so I saw it a lot back then. And nowadays, it is hands down the one I watch the least out of all of the Bond films. Um, I only ever watch this on a full rewatch like we're doing now. Um, I just don't enjoy it. I'm sure there's definitely going to be elements that I do enjoy from it, but even though I saw it a lot back in the day, if you had to get me to recite a Bond film, I, this was probably the one I'd have the most difficulty in. Like I know, obviously, key scenes and key characters, but... Just I could do it with pretty much every other Bond film, but this one I'd have a bit of a hard time with. It's just very cringeworthy in so many moments. Like, don't even get me started on... Um, uh, what's her name? I'm blanking on her name already. Uh, Mrs. Charlie Sheen. Uh, the Assistant. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll get to it next film. Um, but just, yeah, uh, um, uh, all this stuff. So, um... Are you seriously... Oh, no. Molly Warmflash. That, is that her name? Yeah. Yeah? John Cleese. Molly Warmflash? What? No, what's her name? The assistant. The one Christmas that... Jones? Yeah. The MI6 assistant who passes in for duty because of his shoulder. Yeah, Warmflash. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, the doctor. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Warmflash. Who I always yeah, thought was uh, Warmflash. <laughs> yeah, we're going on a bit here. We'll talk about this next <laughs> film, but just... So many cringeworthy moments. Again, I'm sounding negative. It's not like I'm going to be like this the entire film. There's definitely some stuff I enjoy, like the pre-title sequence is great and all this stuff and the villains, but definitely not one I enjoy too much. And I think we've passed the peak of uh, Brosnan at this point, and it's only downhill from here. My God, Colin, you and I, this is like your episode with me. This is like the best. Like, oh, <laughs> Have fun, Colin. This is like the first, no the first and only time that Colin and I will just be on the same page and Noah comes across as a tool in an episode. Um, you know, fast forward to an episode after this where I'm going to be the only tool. But anyway, yeah, this this has forever been my number one Bond film. Um, and... You know, I can pretty much call it right now. This is in my top two already. I, I'm debating whether this goes to number one or whether Goldeneye will take it. I'm just spoiling it right now. I love this film. I love to... this movie, and even I'm laughing at that. <laughs> I I love this film to death. Like this is just such. This is the first film that Bond film I saw in the in the cinema. Um, you know, this isn't the film that I've seen the most, but I I probably would know it the best. Maybe. Um, I just, I think this film is just so good. And even, like, Colin, you mentioned it, Denise Richards' Christmas Jones. You know, I, I think the character is a great character. It's just the actress is oh. shit. Like, it's the, like, the character, but not the actress. Um, but I can ignore that. I can ignore Denise Richards as a Bond girl and just take this film for just how great it is. The plot behind it and kind of, you know, the Electra situation with Bond and then Renard and just, there's just so much going on that just makes it so good. And we get, you know, great sort of allies coming back with Zukovsky and his little crew. And, you know, we get, ah, which screw you, Noah Groves. It's fucking fantastic. Um, the opening sequence is probably my favorite opening sequence of all time. Um, the, the pole plot with M going on. It's just, it's so good. And I've been looking forward to this one the most out of all of our recaps, um, you know, even more so than Die Another Day. This is the one that I, I am just so thrilled that we're finally up to. Um, the, the title, 
credits, the the song, um, you know, this is the next two films are brilliant for Ben Waterworth's music taste. We've got my favorite band in this film, and then the following film is my favorite female singer. So it's just it's brilliant. I've 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 had the pleasure of interviewing Shirley Manson. I spoke to her about doing a Bond theme. The only person in the history of the Bond universe that I have personally interviewed. Um, so. Yes, uh, bring it on. World is not enough. Uh, can't come soon enough. Has Ben started that off talking about me and him agreeing? Then he went on to say some really dumb things. <laughs> and Colin's all of a sudden going, oh, fuck, I like this film like yeah. Ben does. This is who I'm aligning myself with for one week. Uh, <laughs> regardless, uh, it, it should be a fun episode. But we've reached the re- end of Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, sadly, uh, but there's lots more Pierce to come. Um, and uh, I guess everybody out there who's following us, keep listening to the show. And uh, we're we're getting more listeners, and we're getting more likes on Facebook. So definitely like us on Facebook and uh, we follow lost us on Rupert Murdoch. So. Rupert Murdoch's gone. If you know Ben or Noah or I show up in the, or don't show up in the next episode, then just presume that we're dead and avenge uh, our death, like <laughs> Stanford did with Kaufman. Only don't die in the process yourself. And <laughs> uh, keep listening to the episodes, keep downloading it, and giving us your feedback. And uh, until next time, I am Colin, and uh, thank you, John Tenney, for sharing your dream. I'm Noah, and yeah, hopefully, we could have fulfilled a few of John Tenney's uh, dreams throughout this episode and burn all the Dick Stamper films. And I am Ben, and uh, I have uh, enjoyed uh, being a Dick Stamper this episode and uh, fulfilling John Tenney's Dick Stamping dreams. Uh, hashtag pray for Paris. And in the words of James Bond to Paris Carver, I'll be right back. Do you need collision coverage? Yes. Fire? Probably. Property destruction? Definitely. Personal injury? I hope not. Accidents do happen. They frequently do with you. Tell me, James, do you still sleep with a gun under your pillow? The distance between insanity and genius is measured only by success. Where are you? I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You always wear a cunning linguist, James. Sometimes I don't think you have the balls for this job. Perhaps. The advantage is I don't have to think with them all the time. Your new telephone. Talk here. Listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. You were pretty good with that hook. It comes from growing up in a rough neighborhood. You were pretty good on the bike. That comes from not growing up at all. Are we ready to release our new software? As requested, it's full of bugs. People will be forced to upgrade for years. Introducing Windows Vista. All you have to do is press Call the president. Tell him if he doesn't sign the bill lowering the cable rates, we'll release the video of him with the cheerleader in the Chicago motel. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Don't ask. Don't tell. Ah, stop Stop getting in my ear, yeah? Caesar had his legions, Napoleon had his armies. I have TV, news, magazines. Was it something I said? How about the words, I'll be right back? Pump her for information. You'll just have to decide how much pumping is needed, James. You forgot the-
TV shows was torture enough. But every now and then, you get to work with a decadent agent of a corrupt Western power. They say communists don't know how to have fun. They can't get into the car. Oh, you can't be serious. Did you call the auto club? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, 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 very embarrassing. I feel like an idiot. I don't know what to say. Very novel.